All right, so good evening, everyone, and welcome. This is Twist Gaming, where you get to play board games with us. This evening is our Great Game Hunters podcast, where we go through the ins and outs of Kingdom Death Monster, talking about various strategies and whatnot, and our personal experiences. Uh, but who is the we part? This is uh, Twist Gaming, joined with Mr. Fenn. So I'm Matt, and I'm joined with... Josh. And I've already had an introduction, apparently. Hello, everyone. I'm Mr. Fenn. The dulcet tones of Mr. Fenn. So first things first, we'd like to point out that this stream and all of this week's streams are sponsored by Asmati Games with One Deck Dungeon, Forest of Shadows, currently live on Kickstarter. So if you guys could check that out, that would be much appreciated. So what happened on our last podcast, gentlemen? What did we discuss? We, as in me and Josh, had a cool party without you around. It was one of the best podcasts we've done yet. Oh, last week, last time was the walk. The uh, watch that was the the podcast before Fen. You're, you're, you're the, the what? The what? <laughs> the watch. What's that? Yeah. So it, it's your favorite monster, Fen. We all know this. It's his favorite jelly. We're back yeah. on the jelly thing. That's fantastic. Hey, it's now called a jelly around the community. So, or a jellyfish, I should say. So you know, success. So. That was the conclusion of the People of the Lantern campaign. Uh, but we're not quite done with it. That was the end monster. But we're going to talk now about just all of the uh, random ins and outs that you have in terms of that campaign, such as uh, principles, hunt events, story events, uh, stuff to that matter. And anything else you gentlemen would like to bring up as well? We're pretty much bringing all the basic parts of the game that we skipped over when we talked about monsters. So all the innovation stuff, and it's not just for people of the Lantern, it's for all the campaigns. Some of them are just slightly tweaked a little bit, and things change or get added. But um, all the little details that expansions add on that we didn't bring on during the core game because it's not really part of any single monster. Roger that. So So I guess it comes to what would you like to discuss first? So let's talk about... So this is going to be more about the settlement phase and a little bit of the hunt phase. So the first thing... In the settlement phase, one of the things you get with your settlement is principles. So there's uh, four different principles you get. There's eight different ones you can choose from. You get to pick four. Uh, you get choices of two each time. So let, let's go start going down that list. So it is important to note that these principles come up during various milestones in your campaign. I believe there's only one of them that's on a set lantern here, correct? And the rest come up with uh, various checklist items? Uh, correct. So one of them is when you have your first death. One of them is when you have your first child. Uh, one of them is when your society has grown to a population of 15. And then the last one is a timeline event. Uh, I want to say it's like 13 or 14. I'm not sure if it off the top of my head. It is actually year 12. Very close I was, then. I was off. <laughs> a little bit. So as you brought up, uh, the first principle that you get to choose uh, is probably the first one that you're going to hit is the death principle, because it's kingdom death after all. You're probably going to wind up dying before you create new life. So with the death principle, we have uh, two individual options to pick from, as we do with all of the principles. And this is we can either be cannibals or we can bury our dead in graves. So what are the pros and cons of each one? What specifically do you get from them? Uh, if uh, either one of you two would like to jump on that. So Cannibal uh, gives you plus one survival, and then whenever someone dies, you get a basic resource. Where Graves is you get plus one understanding to all new survivors. And uh, if someone dies during the hunt or shutdown phase, you get two endeavors. 
and if someone dies during the settlement phase, you get one endeavor. So that is essentially you get one bonus endeavor if someone dies because you would uh, normally get one endeavor for a returning survivor. Correct. But so if you picked if you picked ugh, cannibalism, you would need, you will, you would miss one endeavor and get a resource. So from personal experience, uh, I know what you pick most of the time. Fen, how about you? Which one do you usually shoot for? Um, I actually think between these two, this is probably the most close decision. On the whole, I think Graves slightly edges it um, because when you get past the early game, basic resources do lose a little bit of meaning um, as you're especially if you're playing with lots of expansion monsters or if you're hunting, you know, specific bits of gear. Um, but I, I think you can't make a wrong decision with these two. It's really what you're looking to flavor. Um, I would say uh, the plus one understanding puts Graves maybe 55%, ahead, so 55%, 45 um, Like I say, I think either one of these is valid. Um, and I'm currently playing with cannibals for people of the stars that wasn't my choice that was the group decision um and people of the sun is grave so you know we pretty much uh flipped between either one so in our personal campaigns that josh and i have played uh we have i think we started out our first campaign with picking graves correct me if i'm wrong josh i'm sorry not graves cannibalism yeah correct we did cannibalism the first game and we had a lot of death we had a lot of resources but we had, like, no population, and we couldn't make babies, so we quickly died. Um, yeah, we didn't last particularly long. And to me, I don't know, personally, it seems that because you're not exactly sure what Endeavors is when you first play the game that or how valuable they are, you would probably want to gravitate towards cannibalism. And also, it's got the factor of, oh, yeah, it's funny to be a cannibal. I think, ironically, um, Graves is actually the better choice for starting players because it does buffer you a little bit more against bad events happening, and Cannibals is slightly more advanced. I can see that. Uh, the Graves definitely does take a lot of sting out of losing someone because uh, if you couple that with what we're going to talk about a little later on with the Protect the Young New Life principle, you're almost guaranteed, as long as you nail the augury, if you get like love juice or something like that, it's another story. But it's significantly easy for you to replenish your population with the added endeavors that you're getting. I like both of these. Um, I'm very happy with them. And I, I, as I said, I don't ever feel like whichever route my group decides to go, uh, I don't think there's ever a wrong decision. And quite often when they say, which one should we pick, fan? I go, either one is fine, whichever one you think is cooler. So they generally pick cannibals. Yeah, just to note, though, uh, one of the cool things is when you do principal death, you do get some extra benefits. And I kind of like the better roll on Graves. So basically, you roll a d10. Um, on Cannibalism, 1 through 5, you gain a Fountain Stone, and all the party survivors get plus 3 Insanity. Um, a 6 plus, a nominated survivor, that survivor uh, frantically tears the corpse open and drinks its blood. Uh, they decide that for every new creature they eat, they will become stronger. The survivor gains plus 1 permanent speed. Which we all know we don't really care for speed. Where um, wah, wah. when you do graves, it's one through five. All department survivors gain plus one survival, plus one understanding. You understand is really nice, and that's for four survivors. But uh, six plus is the survivor gets plus one permanent luck. Yep, yeah, that's. Uh, I, I had. I knew there was a slightly better table on graves. I had forgotten what it was. Um, 
And I mean, all right, you can now put that like 60, 40, I think, maybe even 65, 35 towards Graves because plus one luck in the early game is huge. All right. Sorry about that, everyone. Uh, slight disconnect there. Uh, so we're we talking about uh, the principal death and the plus one luck it just makes that a little bit better to do Graves. Anything else to add to that as we got cut out just there? To be honest, I think that's pretty much it for that. It's uh, fairly straightforward, but a pretty decent choice in either direction. All right. So next, the next principle we hit is uh, going to be principle new life. That's probably the second thing you'll hit because you're going to make a baby. If you don't make a baby by year 12, you're going to have a hard time. And uh, I don't think you can get principle society without actually making a baby. I mean, it might be slightly you possible. You can um, through certain hand events and through certain settlement cards, but... Kind of rare. So most of the time it's going to be a toss-up between New Life and Death as your first principle. Yeah, yeah. So New Life triggers when you make your first baby. It's so adorable. And you have two choices there as well. And that is going to be either Survival of the Fittest or Protect the Young. And it is worth noting that Survival of the Fittest got an update in 1.5 that makes it an actual worthwhile suggestion now. Because before, it was kind of trash without you know going... Too off the deep end. So the original survival fitness is plus one survival, and then when you roll on the enemy's table, you roll two dice. You pick the lowest result. Um, the other thing was all right, started all new, all newborn survivors get plus one strength. Uh, now the one point five update makes it so all new, no, all survivors get plus one strength, plus one evasion, and all survivors get a lifetime reroll that you can use at any time. And that last bit's really that that really strong part that makes Ralphit is actually usable. Yeah, I mean, well, the plus one evasion is fantastic as well, just because evasion is such a great stat to have. It keeps you alive. Uh, but having a lifetime oh crap reroll is super clutch and will, you know, you're going to use that to save you from death as long as you don't do anything silly. Uh, so essentially, you get uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card on all of your survivors once in a lifetime. And then the uh, Protect the Young... All this does is when you roll on the table, you get to roll two dice and you get to pick which die you want to use. So you don't even have to pick the, the higher die if the lower one does something slightly better. Where there's a few weird situations where you might want that, but uh, you don't get any plus survival and this hasn't changed. So this is this makes it easy to make babies and not die in childbirth. Absolutely. And I know we've actually used that uh, picking the lower of the two results a few times uh, once in our current campaign that we're playing on Twitch because uh, in the People of the Stars campaign, only a 10 is what gives you twins, or a 9-10. Uh, if you roll higher than that, it's just a baby, I believe. I'm sorry, no, it's a savior for nine, special child. Regardless, you can use it to avoid having twins if you don't want more population, or if you want to pick a, a specific plus one strength survivor, if you have certain innovations as well. So it comes in handy once in a blue moon. So, Fan, what are your thoughts on the two? Um, well, I mean, pre-Nerf, my thoughts are the decision is very... <laughs> There's no decision whatsoever. Um, protect the young, like, it is mathematically survival of the fittest will kill you. Um, and protect the young was the only sensible choice. So post, it is actually kind of interesting. Uh, if you pick survival of the fittest, you get an overall... A lot of tougher survivors. Uh, they last longer. They can avoid mitigate more issues and problems. But you've got a lower chance of getting cool special babies. Um, 
and that is relevant in People of the Lantern, and it's relevant in People of the Stars. So it is a meaningful decision post, and it's some people have been claiming that the new Star of the Fittest is too strong, and I think in isolation played with the 1.31 rules, it isn't. However, we don't know what the changes to the saviors are going to be. If the saviors become less desirable, so you're not so bothered if you don't manage to roll them, um, like I am, I, I don't care about rolling saviors even when I play people lantern. In fact, I hold off on hovel for as long as I can to get more twins. Um, because, you know, I, I want romantic up and running. We'll talk about that a bit later before I start doing saviors. Um, it's, uh, it's just become more meaningful and, I, I like the changes, and I think that they are pretty closely balanced between the two. And I also appreciate what it's done for People of the Sun. Right. Well, I can't personally speak to People of the Sun, but I do enjoy that lifetime reroll, and I think that definitely makes it worth it. I guess one way you could look at it is you're trading off a couple of special child prospects in order to have a slightly more souped-up general population. The only issue is that low rolls typically kills the parent or parents so which doesn't seem thematically right i could understand like the children not surviving but the parents not to be strong enough to survive it when they are you know yeah. the fittest. that makes a little a little confusing that's why the lifetime reroll makes some sense because often you apply those to try and make sure the parents don't drop dead and the child survives and that kind of sort of makes sense you know they are using a will and determination or something along those lines to keep themselves alive when they should be dying. And to note, I want to bring up what the book has for new life. So if you do uh, Survival of the Fittest, if you roll one through five, the parents get plus one permanent strength and two insanity. Uh, they have to skip the next hunt, but that's not a huge deal. Uh, but if it's six plus, the child gets plus two courage and the tough fighting art and one random disorder, which is not which is an interesting mix. But protect the young, one through five... The parents each gain plus two survival and plus one permanent evasion. And the six plus, the newborn gets plus two understanding and the strategist fighting art, which is one of the best fighting arts, I think, in the base game. It's definitely one of the best fighting arts for the early game, for sure. So again, where this table roll kind of pushes you to uh, protect the young with the plus one evasion option or a really cool fighting art. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so as I said, in one point, a three one, this was a non-choice. But then this is another little wrinkle you want to think about, especially when we find out what sculpture is going to be like, because I don't think it can survive in its current form um, in 1.5. The 1.5 release of sculpture, as you guys found out, is broken as heck. Um, but can you imagine? I mean, just having strategist on tap, that would be amazing. Yeah, it would be amazing. And it's it's the only, like, real way to get it unless you randomly draw it. There's really no other way to get strategist, I think. There's no other story events that really hand that out. Absolutely. So on the whole, I think this is one of the things that when we talk about the 1.5 changes, where we know all about them. We'll go back and talk about it again. Um, as it stands right now, if you're just playing 1.31 and you're not playing with the proposed changes from the Kickstarter, Protect the Young is pretty much your only choice. And you get to experience five of the fittest when you play People of the Sun. Yeah. So next up, this, we're going to go into society. So this is when you hit population fifteen. Um, so you can either do a collective toil or accept the darkness. And this is where those—it's not a choice. Bone witch. Bone witch. <laughs> that's that's the that's um 
That's not that one, is it? Uh, yeah, that's part of this. So um, if you do collect a toil, uh, what it is is for every 10 population you have, you get plus one endeavor, which seems interesting. And then we have Accept the Darkness, which is plus two to all brain trauma rolls, which means you can't really die easily from brain trauma anymore. The only way to die from brain trauma would be to have three disorders and then roll a 10, correct? Correct. Correct. And then I'm going to mention what happens in the book with these two. So in the book, if you pick, if you pick Collective Toil, Bone Witch is going to happen. You get minus one population. Ooh. And Bone Witch comes in three years. Uh, then you roll D10 on a 1 through 5. Four survivors get plus 5 survival, which is really nothing. Uh, 6 through 10, uh, one survivor gains a secretive disorder. It can't be removed for any reason. In addition, they get the Timeless Eye Fighting Art. Neither of those are great. Um, Unremovable secretive is horrific. Yeah. And uh, society... Uh, so, except the darkness, 1 through 5. Four survivors get ten pl- plus 10 insanity, which is could be nice. Um, and then a six plus, uh, you gain the quixotic disorder. It cannot be removed for any reason. In addition, gain the leader and orator of death fighting arts, which is an interesting combination. So, well, quixotic is nice. Well, this one's an absolute non-decision. Collective toil doesn't do enough to mitigate the bone witch and the kind of rubbish gains from the dice table. Except darkness is actually meaningful. It can help mitigate one of the more annoying ways to die, brain trauma, which can like hit you very badly in all sorts of different places. Um, I mean, this is the reason whenever I roll 14 for my population at the start of the game, so the four survivors survive and I get maximum roll for population on first story, I will try and make babies over innovating or building locations. Because if I can get 15 population and get except darkness, then game on. And the brain trauma, like, getting getting insanity is one of the hardest things to do. Like, getting armor for your body, that's easy. Like, keeping consistent insanity on new survivors is a lot harder to do, and it's easier to die that way if you can't get it. From a uh, personal experience standpoint here, one of our, our, well, our first successful campaign, I believe it was, Josh, we had the uh, collective toil principle, did we not? We did. I don't know how we made that work, but we also had a stupid population of 40 plus people. And right, that's where I was getting at. We had endeavors a year, which is weird. Right. We had Protect the Young and Graves, and we were just making babies like it was going out of style. And with that extra population, we were getting just increasingly more and more endeavors, and it was just getting silly. Yeah. I think this is part of the idea is it's meant to be too, like, extreme pathways you can take which is one of them is to be barbaric except the darkness cannibalism and survival of the fittest and you've got a small number of survivors who are very tough and hard and dangerous and then the other flip side is you've got this bunch of softies who have a giant pile of uh, people they just chuck at all the problems and just go eh we can make more um the, the thing is of course we're picking the pathway between where we want to go in those and as a consequence it doesn't quite work out that way um but I do think there is a valid route of building huge population um, and doing collective toilet and all of that kind of stuff. It's just, I think you get to do less cool stuff when you take that route. And Bone Witch can happen. And that yeah. has scarred me for the rest of my life. So let, let's talk about Bone Witch because we're talking about events and that's what triggers, this is one of the things that triggers Bone Witch. 
So, Bone Witches, one day the exiled emerged from the darkness, the settlement worried at the sound of her wailing chants. Everyone feared that mystery kept her alive in the darkness all these years. Some could not resist asking. All non-death returning survivors gain three insanity. Insane returning survivors are inexplicably drawn to the Bone Witch and must endeavor at the Witch Camp. Otherwise, during the settlement phase, any survivor may endeavor at the Witch Camp if they choose. So, I know, Fen, you have your way to work around this is... You make sure everyone that goes out is death when they go to fight something this year. Or I kill them all off. Or you kill them all off. Yes, that's... that's I absolutely have done that. I've just sacrificed a whole lantern year to get rid of the bone, which... Because I really rate romantic, which is... We'll talk about in the next bit. Yeah, so... And even if you don't have your insanity up, she gives you insanity to make you insane. And then she's going to make you waste all your endeavors there. So... It's pretty much all you're going to be able to do that year, too. So it, she kind of screws you in both that ways. But the worst is everyone has to roll on this table. Not just one person. Everyone. So let's. I'm going to start from the top and go down. Let's start with the good stuff. All right. So you roll an 8, 9, or 10. The Bone Witch spends, sends whispers of horrors and wonders she has seen, aiming or arming you with the valuable wisdom, gain plus 2 insanity, plus 1 understanding, and the following ability. Home and instinct. Add plus 5 to your roll results on the Runaway Story event. Uh... Fan, do you run away in your fights? Ever, really? I almost never bother building pictographs. Um, uh, as a, yeah, I think I've built it like once or twice because normally it's low priority for me. I know there's a lot of interesting events that can trigger off it on the hunt chart, but yeah, I don't. I mean, there's something, there's, there's a strategy that when we get to the Slenderman podcast where I do run away and I will talk about it, um, but for the most part, it's not really a good idea to run away, in my opinion, because the game, it sucks to be three versus the monster a lot. And, you know, it, you kind of start creating this domino effect where everybody has to just get out of there because you've got no chance. But, you know, it's a nice option. Yeah. Um, no, if you roll a nine or ten and you have the guidepost innovation, she takes it from you. And Hooray! She, she offers to give you something for one bone, which is the monster cloth, monster cloth style fighting art, which I believe is plus two accuracy, plus one strength, and savage with fist and tooth. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast, which is actually, I think, a really good fighting art for fist and tooth fighting. I think everything about that, her getting rid of the guidepost, her giving you monster claw fighting art, that's all great. So, and it's only one bone. It's not even a high cost. It's like here, a bone. Yeah. Um, so you roll a five, six, or seven. Uh, the bone witch mutters of learn embrace of the waiting darkness. Her stories stir strange yearnings in your bones. For being a patient listener, she offers to teach you something for the cost of one D5 bone resources. If you spend the resources, again, the extra sense fighting art and plus three survival. So extra sense fighting art, which we'll talk about later, but it's you get to dodge twice in a round instead of once, which is good. I don't know how I feel about 1d5 bone resources if I rolled a 5 for bones. 5 bones? I don't know if I would trade that up, though. Fen, Matt? Depends on the number of um, bone resources and how much bone you've got, but, I mean, this isn't a terrible result. It's fine, you know? Absolutely. It's all circumstantial, but importantly, it's not something that's that terrible to roll in the grand scheme of things. Alright, so next up is 2, 3, and 4. The secrets of the dark should not be seen. The last thing you see are the witches out reached claws reaching for your eyes you your eyes are scarred suffer minus four permanent accuracy and plus four permanent strength if for some reason you gain this result twice you die add bone which is the timeline three years from the 
current Lantineer. So that's just awful. Like so awful. I remember, I think this happened to three of my survivors when we were playing our first campaign. And that is why I'm just like, screw this. And like, if it was just a normal blind injury, it was minus one accuracy and plus four permanent strength. I don't know if I would mind as much, but minus four permanent accuracy, you just can't do anything. It essentially makes you retire that survivor. Fan thoughts? Anything more? Well, if you mess with Granny Bowitch, you're going to get some problems, and she's going to keep coming back over and over. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Actually, um, Granny Bowitch jokes aside, um, somebody did uh, try and take the position on Board Game Geek recently that this was actually a good thing because you could then build a really high-speed survivor and play with lots roll, get to roll lots of dice, but not worry about hitting too many times, which I was kind of flabbergasted about the logic there. I mean, that's like, well, so you're just building a high-variance survivor who's basically slow at attacking, but sometimes they roll like five hits and then get shredded to pieces. So, I mean, essentially, this is... I can't think of a situation where you can take advantage of this. Like, a hitting on basically tens and red for plus four strength is, yeah. Oh, true, red savior, yeah, yeah. Okay, you could check a red savior on it. But that may that will may probably change in 1.5, so. Yeah, that's the only thing. Like, a red savior doesn't matter. It's just like, oh, I auto-hit, so screw the minus accuracy, and I just, I'm even stronger now because they already have plus strength. Um, and then I guess timeless I would mitigate it a bit as well, wouldn't it? You get perfect hits on nines and tens. Yeah. So you can't you you can't have timeless eye if you're blind, but I, this isn't blind. Yeah, it's not blind. It's it's a really weird combo. Uh, so let's go let's go to a one result. Uh, the bone which never forgave her exile, her burning hatred lit the dark brighter than any lantern. With jagged teeth and gnarled claws, she attacks. You manage to escape, but the wounds she left. She inflicted continue to burn. Suffer minus one permanent strength, minus one permanent accuracy, and skip the next hunt. That's better than the two, three, and four. Like she doesn't come back, does she? No, she does come back. So oh, she does. Yes. Yeah, so it's a one through four. She comes back, but it's only minus one accuracy and minus one strength, which is not the end of the world. Where minus four accuracy is pretty much the end of the world. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those things where it, it really looks like when they were first designing the game, they weighted strength a little bit more heavily than they should have. So I feel like that's why this is a one result, because plus four strength is, oh, that's going to make up for the accuracy, but minus one strength, that's going to kill you. No, I wish Zenith was still in the chat, and he doesn't appear to be in the list anymore. So yeah, yeah. He the can game... explain why. Yeah, the game's in this really heavy strength a lot, and I think that's why they thought you know, protect the uh, survival of fittest was really strong, where plus one or two strength didn't really matter. There was so much other gear and stuff to mitigate it that it's probably, besides speed, which I really don't care, like, I really don't care about strength too much. I care more about evasion and luck and accuracy. Yeah. And then um, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there seems to be a lot of fingerprints in this game that suggests during playtesting, they preferred High speed, high strength, um, quite sort of chaotic ways of playing. I, I, I believe you said that you knew that they were playing with Survivor of the Fittest for quite a while, um, mostly testing that way. And so they were playing like a very short lived, chaotic kind of drop dead sort of game 
um, which of course the community has shied away from and moved towards a, a safe, dependable, accurate, strong, hard hitting sort of methodical way of dealing with things, which is the only way at the moment that you can experience the high level content. Really, you, you can't get to there if you're going to be um, throwing a whole load of dice at a phoenix or something like that. Absolutely. It uh, definitely shows in that gameplay. But yeah, it's consistency is key. All right. So we brought up the Bone Witch. So let's go into the last principle. We have conviction. So this is either barbaric or romantic. So barbaric is plus one survival. Well, real quick, Josh, when does this one trigger again? This is year 12. Um, so this is plus one survival, and all current and newborn survivors gain plus one permanent strength. So this is where they're like, oh, more strength. Everyone loves strength. Next up, we have romantic, which is plus one survival limit. So they both do that. Um, you may innovate one additional time during the settlement phase. In addition, all newborn survivors get plus one understanding. So two very, very different choices. So I'm going to go to the book and see the other things they give you. So uh, if you two romantic, you're going to get the bone witch. Again. Um, and uh, you roll die on a one through five. Uh, the pardon survivors get plus one permanent lock and the prey disorder. And I don't recall what the prey is off the top of my head. Um, six plus uh, this, uh, one of your survivors gets legend caller once per lifetime on the hunt board. After all darkness, instead of rolling a random hunt event, they could use 53 as your result, which we'll talk about later, what 53 is. Woo! And though, so if you do... Uh, Barbarian, barbaric, I'm sorry. You get Hands of Heat added to the timeline, which is an awesome event, which we'll talk about right after this. Uh, one through five, Departing Survivors gain plus one permanent speed and the Honorable Disorder, which means they can't attack from the blind spot. I don't know why, you know, barbarics don't want to hit from the blind spot. I didn't know they had Crunk face, monster in face, not behind like coward. <laughs> don't you fight like crunk? I think that's the philosophy behind it. Yeah, I, yeah, I get that. Um, and then they get... Six plus, they get the ability Thundercaller, which is just like the other one, but they get to roll. Instead of Random Hunt, they get to use 100 as their result, which we'll also talk about later in the podcast. Boo! So, yeah, the bonuses for Romantic are really, really sweet. It's just that that Bone Witch is not nice. Yeah. There's one other thing as well, which um, it's not entirely purely core game. Um, but the Vagabond armor is significantly better under the Romantic, and that's what usually um, trends my decision, is I want to be playing with Vagabond armor, so I tend towards Romantic. And I think, like in my head, Romantic is almost just, it's it's good enough to offset how bad Bone Witch is, and I don't mind taking it for a year and just trying to mess with it. Yeah, yeah I, I'd have to agree with you on that one. Just the, the benefits are so nice all around the board for Romantic that that one horrible thing of the Bone Witch can kind of be pushed to the side and you're just like, I guess I'll deal with it. It sucks, but this is actually like a, a difficult decision between the two and it is meaningful. So I'm fine with these two. I do still think the Bone Witch could be tweaked and i probably the gambler's chest is going to do some stuff with that them to make it more interesting um well it will do won't it of course it's got bone witches in there um but the, i'm okay with these two and as i said despite the bone witch i will often pick romantic all right so since we talked about that let's talk about hands of heat a little bit because this is another event uh this happens early on in the core game i don't remember year four or five 
I think. I think it's five because four is Butcherino. Yeah. So I think it's five. Um, so Matt, you want to read that for us? Oh, I do not have that open right now. <laughs> All right, I can do that. Um, so Hands of Heat, uh, when you first get it, it's really nice because if you don't have the lantern oven, um, you get it, basically. It says, oh, you figured out fire. You can make an oven now. Um, then once you do it, you can experiment with the lanterns, and you get plus one courage for doing it, and you roll d10. On one through three, um, you badly get burned. Uh, you lose the population, and Bonewitch gets added to timeline in three years. So Hands of Feet still can add Bonewitch. Um, I have it open now if you want me to take over. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so on a four through six, the survivor vigorous, vigorously shakes a lantern and holds it watchfully. It bursts into blue light with a distinct hissing sound. The lantern grows hot in the survivor's clenched hands, burning their flesh. They gain plus one permanent strength and the red fist secret fighting art. And then we gain the lantern of an innovation. So what is Red Fist, or do you want to save that when we go over the fighting arts? Let's do that now. Red Fist is the only secret fighting art we haven't talked about. Every, all the other secret fighting arts are mixed in with some kind of monster, and you get it somehow through them. So Red Fist fighting art is at the start of each showdown, gain a plus one strength token. Survivors may spend plus one strength tokens instead of survival, in place of survival. So cool. This is a really good fighting art. It's interesting, the fact that... Um, you can use strength tokens in place of survival means when you're told you cannot spend survival, you can still do survival actions because you, if you've got strength tokens. This has all sorts of cool, funky, um, extra things that combine with any other stuff that hands out strength tokens. In the core game, this is one of the few ways to get the strength tokens. Um, it's great. I love it to pieces. I wish it wasn't a secret fighting art so you could actually pass it around a bit or get it more often because it's fantastic. Bad. I think that's why it is a secret, so you can't pass it around, and it's rare. Well, yeah, but this is... And compared to all the other secret fighting arts we've talked about during the core campaign, where I've been like, eh, don't really want to have the one from the Kingsman, I don't really care about the one from the Butcher, the hand one is really awful, it's nice to have something, and I'm like, yes, please, I want this. So so all the other ones should be up to this level. That, that, that's what it really should be. So when you get a secret fighting art, you're excited, besides... Yeah, I mean, Legendary Lungs kind of nearly is up to this level on certain survivors it's really good um but it's can also be like an absolute nightmare to deal with uh swordsman's promise needs to be better than this all right so matt what's the uh, last bit of the uh, roll results here so on experimenting with lanterns a seven plus is the survivor discovers heat and a settlement celebrates yay uh you gain the lantern of an innovation that survivor gains red fist secret fighting art and then they roll on the lantern branding table. So that's a little separate table off to the side, which is a feast culminating in the ritual branding of the settlement's finest warriors by the heat of an agitated lantern. Discard half of the settlement's total resources, round it down. So that's pretty significant, or it can be. And then you roll a d10. And on a one through three, you get tradition. All departing survivors gain plus 10 survival, and you add hands of heat in one d10 lantern years. So the worst option there is you get to do Hands of Heat again. Um, on a four through seven, Branded Feet, you gain plus one permanent speed. Eh, I don't know if I'd be particularly happy about losing half of my settlement's resources in order to get plus one speed on a character. Even better, why does Branding Your Feet give you plus one speed and not plus one movement? Yeah, that makes sense. And it would be interesting because movement's quite rare. And actually does have some applications when you can move six. 
Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, that would be pretty mm-hmm. cool if you got plus one movement from that because that is, as you were saying, such a rare stat increase. And uh, I'd like to see that more in the game just because it's interesting. It is interesting. Um, you actually need extra movement to make the green armor um, have its ultimate ability unlocked. So, you know, it, it, that's a damn hard to achieve at the moment. So it's like, yeah, I I, I don't know. Um, I don't understand the branding of the feet fresh to speed. And I feel like that may have been a translation error. Um, but, I mean, that's what we got. And we all know how we feel about having extra speed. My survivor, she currently has minus one speed and I couldn't be happier. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much in the same boat with that. Low speed, better odds. Uh, so then with an 8 through 9 on that table, you brand your hand, and you gain plus 1 permanent strength. Again, this is one of those things where maybe they weighted strength a little heavily in the game, but it's not a bad option to have here. It's just that essentially rolling a 4 through 6 becomes the same as rolling a 7 plus and then an 8 or a 9. Uh, that's talking on the first table and then rolling on the second table in comparison. Yeah. I just don't like the resource losses on this. Really sucks. Uh, finally, though, you have the 10 plus and an accident suffer the blinded severe head injury and gain plus one permanent luck. I don't know why they really had to put the blinded here on a 10 roll just because I don't know. It just I don't like that. It's a weird thing when you try and think about it thematically. It's like. If you have a character with otherworldly luck, which is from one of the expansions, you get plus one luck, so you're more likely to roll a 10. And then, so your character's lucky they've blinded themselves in an accident, and they get more lucky. But um, I don't mind a character being blind. It's like minus one accuracy. I mean, the second blind is an issue, but the first blind's okay. And having plus one luck is a decent trade for one accuracy. Yeah, this whole table just seems a little wonky, though, because the experiment with lanterns, the first table, a 4 through 6 gives you red fist, plus 1 strength, and the lantern of an innovation. But then if you roll a 7 plus, you get red fist and lantern oven, so you don't get the plus 1 strength. Then you have to spend half your resources to roll on a table in which one of the best options on there is to get plus 1 strength. I think the best option is to roll one through three and get hands of heat again so you get another Red Fist secret fighting art. That's the best option. Yep, that sounds like the best option. Yeah, and it's a one through three, which is the the funny thing. But uh, again, it would be nice to plan this through to have minimal resources in your storage so that way it doesn't sting too much. Well, they have said they're looking at rebalancing some of the tables. I mean, that was mostly in the hunt tables, but maybe this one's been looked at as well because it does seem a little... Like ass backwards. Um, and I just want to make a point back when we go to back back to principal conviction on both the rolls for uh, romantic and barbaric. If you get a one through five, you lose all your settlement storage. It's just settlement storage, though, isn't it? It's not the resources you brought back. Oh, sorry. It says lose all resources, including the yep. storage. Yep. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, that's just you have to roll with that, and you have to deal with the fact that when you get to this lantern year, you may not have any resources. So make sure you have spent everything you can before you get to it. Yeah. So, well, the thing is, if you go romantic and you lose ten resources, that's where you get your plus one luck and the prey disorder. So maybe you want to lose ten prey to di- four survivors plus one luck. Yeah. Prey disorder isn't too bad. It's you can't spend survival unless you're insane. So it's all, it's like not great, but you know you can mitigate it. Um, so yeah. 
Yeah, I could live with that. It's yeah, it's another reason why I like romantic. All right, so that's all everything on principles. You guys ready to move on? Absolutely. Indeed. So next up, I have I have a uh, just a couple generic story events that really aren't pulled up anywhere. So we have the basic age story event. So when you age up, I don't know how much we want to really talk about it. It's mostly plus one stats, or you get fighting arts. You guys want to go yeah. a little deeper? Any of that, or that, that, there's pretty much that's it. There's nothing you can really control here. There, there isn't. I mean, basically, you roll on a table. The table shifts around a little bit in a kind of. It's a. Uh, it's clearly a nonsensical fashion the way it moves around because everyone in my groups, whenever they level up, they're always confused when they get to like two and three and they don't understand why the numbers have shifted and they don't feel they've shifted in any beneficial manner. Um, and on the whole, most of the time, this is gain of fighting art, which I'm, I'm okay with, although it's very random. Um, yeah, there's, there's no real strategy. You kind of just roll with the punches. Um, and sometimes you roll really well and come out of it with great stats, but I think it's telling that my ageless survivors, I don't bother aging them. So I value having low age for a reason we'll talk about later over gaining more stats and more abilities through this random table. Yeah, the stats here aren't even particularly great most of the time, unless you've managed to get someone to lucky elder. Most of the time you're just going to get a fighting art or, as we said, a strength. And it's... Yeah. Yeah, and Lucky Elder, unless you are ageless, is like, oh, wow, one, you know, unless you're, you're going into the very final fight of the entire campaign um, or a really clutch, important situation, you can't really take too much use of it. All right. Next up I had was uh, Intimacy. This is just the table we roll on for kids. Um, some things to note. So, one, both parents are dead, or they walk off into the darkness. Uh, they're essentially dead. Yeah, they're essentially dead. Um Two and three are the female dies in survival uh, with the child, and uh, the male mourns, gets a random disorder, and plus three insanity. Otherwise, four through six, you get plus one. Seven and eight, you get plus one, and the parents get a plus ten survival. If you have beds, that baby also gets plus one strength. I don't know how that works. Making babies on a bed is hardier, I guess, right? I would suggest the baby is born on the bed, maybe, and so it has a softer landing, so it doesn't break its pieces while coming out. Maybe. Break its pieces. I'm stretching for some explanation because I don't have one. It's just a benefit to, for bed, really. You know, I don't think there's a logical reason for it. It's just kind of balance. I would so like then, bed to be like a plus one to your roll result or something. That would be more interesting. And mitigate a... We've got that. That's face painting. Yeah, that's face painting. All right. Um, and then nine plus is you get twins and you get plus two population, which is really nice. Um, but if you have Hubble... You get the birth of a savior, which is our next story we're going to go into. So side note here, this is one of those things that I was talking about before where uh, we, if you have protect the young, you can choose the lower of two results. So we were playing once or twice and we rolled a seven or eight. And then I want to say like a nine or a 10. And we didn't necessarily want the twins or the special child. We wanted that one survivor with the plus one strength for whatever reason, and then the plus 10 survival for the parents. So we would take uh, that selection. So that's one of the weird situations where it could happen, where you would take the lower of the two results. It's nice to have the choice. Yeah, so let's... You guys ready to talk about some saviors? Savior babies. Uh, Yeah, I guess. 
<laughs> Don't sound so enthusiastic, then. I'm really glad they're being changed because uh, I find them like not very interesting. But we'll talk about that now. When it comes down to it, the way Josh and I play is there's only one choice of which saver you want. I can't believe you guys still haven't properly abused blue ones. I think we need to start dipping a toe in that when we get back to uh, vanilla campaigns or standard campaigns. By the time you're back there, it's going to have all changed. Point taken. So the birth of a savior event. Uh, The newborn vanishes from the loving arms of the settlement for a fraction of a second. In that second, it spends a lifetime in the domain of the ethereal dreamer and returns with a dream. So you basically have three choices there. If you want to have the red savior, the green savior, or the blue savior. And each one has a specific stat synergy combination that they have. So the red savior is Dream of the Beast, and they get a plus one permanent red affinity that just happens to be there all the time. And they get this ability called Keratosis. For each red affinity, one of your attack rolls automatically hits each attack. So they get one free auto hit from their inception, and then for each red affinity that they have, they get another auto hit. So that could be good if you want to go for a high-speed savior that is always hitting things. And they have another ability called Red Life Exchange, where you get plus one permanent strength for each age milestone. And uh, as with all of the saviors, you gain three additional hunt XP whenever you gain a hunt XP in the aftermath. So they age up four times as quickly. Indeed. Um, The general consensus, um, and the community seems to agree with this, is the red ones certainly do not go faster. Um, and this is kind of the worst of the three choices. The extra strength seems to generally be meaningless. The auto hits, again, not that meaningful, Um, especially as there's actually some items and gear items that get screwed up and lose ability. Well, they'll get screwed up, but they lose bonuses if you're not actually making the attack roll. This really should have been like, maybe they always count as perfect hits or something like that. It could have done with a little bit more punch. But again, as we're sort of noting here, it seems like strength has been valued more highly by the design team than it has been by the community. All right, so that's the red savior. Let's hop on over to the green savior. And this is going to be the dream of the crown. So the newborns gain one green affinity permanent to add on to everything. And they have an ability called Dorminatus, which is when you depart, gain one armor to every hit location for each green affinity that you have, which is silly awesome. On top of that, too, they have green life exchange. So again, they gain experience four times as quickly. But for each age milestone, they get plus one permanent evasion. And we all know how nice evasion is. Evasion is probably king of the stats um, overall, especially in the late game. You can neuter some incredibly dangerous monsters. And in fact, I think most of the really successful late game parties owned by the various members of the community who do the really crazy shit include uh, survivors and sometimes saviors with very high evasion. Um, And they basically use their armor to mitigate the reactions and evasion to mitigate attacks. This is very clearly the strongest of the three savior abilities. So much so that uh, even though we are playing um, People of the Stars on Thursdays, when we got our hands on the ability to gain saviors, um, every player chose Dream of the Crown. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, it's really hard to die to a monster when they can't hit you. Yeah, heck, having 
three tanking characters with nine evasion is ridiculous. And uh, we're going to go into our personal experiences with various saviors in just a second. But let's finish up with the blue savior, which is the dream of the lantern. And the newborn gains plus one permanent blue affinity. So this is the blue savior. And they have uh, their ability called Lucen. I'm sorry, Lucerne. Ugh, I probably butchered that one. Uh, but for every blue affinity that you have, your ranged weapons get that amount of range, and your melee weapons get that amount of reach. So you get to attack one additional space away for each blue affinity you have, essentially. And finally, it has blue life exchange. So for each age milestone that they have, they get plus one permanent luck. And I can see why you question why we haven't tried uh, playing with a blue savior quite as often as we do green because of how highly we value luck in this game. Yeah. Sometime, and it's probably not going to happen because of the changes, but it's a real shame. Um, actually, thinking about it, do you have the Lonely Tree in People of the Stars right now? Yes, we do. do. Yeah, there's a, you've got a small chance of maybe getting your hands on what you need to make a blue savior with Cyclopean armor, and that is quite amusing. Um, it's very amusing, actually. I'm assuming that means they hit from basically anywhere on the board, then. And they've got about usually seven or eight range on melee weapons. Not anywhere on the board, because it's kind of hard with Cyclopean armor to get that high on the number of affinities. Usually cap out around six or so. But still, you know, it's um, it's a lot of fun. What if you put and it on a bow? Like the Phoenix you... bow, which has like nine range? <laughs> Then you can go farm the level three dung beetle knight because you don't have to worry about his damn trap anymore once again because you've got more range and he's got movement and Zenith can make sad faces. <laughs> we kind of did that once before. <laughs> yeah, you did it to the level the level one or two, didn't you? Um, because they have, that guy only has seven movement. The level three has eight, and so he actually catches the Vespertine. Um, it also doesn't stack on top of the range. It's an alternate, so you need to get to nine, which is actually quite hard. Ah, ah, it is. It's possible, but it's hard. Yeah. So there's yeah, there's some interesting things. Uh, so sadly, I don't think it works with the death mask, which is a really cool uh, item. Yeah. Um, there is one thing which I think is worth noting here. Um, it is possible in the game to get more than one of these savior abilities on the same survivor. If you do it and they don't have ageless, then they are going to age very quickly because each of these exchanges has a different name. So for each one you have, they're going to gain an additional 300 XP. So you do do not ever have a multi um, multi savior multi color savior unless you, unless they're ageless. Can we do a Just, triple color? Yeah. You can do triple color if you can manage it. I I actually have a community set of cards created by a guy named Orange. I use for ability cards. Um, I can't remember exactly where I got them, but I printed them off. And he does actually have a multicolored one in there. So either he made that for funsies, or there is a way to do it that I've not found. But I think it's just for funsies. I'm just I'm just trying to think of that with the uh, Cyclopean armor of how silly that would be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wait till you play people of the sun and then you can have some fun there. All right. So that, those are saviors. Uh, anything else you guys have to talk about them a little bit or 
Uh, I have the picture from the rule book printed out in large print framed on my wall because the artwork on those three pictures is gorgeous. So for all of my sighing and eye rolling about saviors, um, I do think that it's such a good piece of artwork in the book. I know that's not relevant <laughs> to the to the way it plays. And that and actually I'm very pleased they're being changed because I do want them to be more meaningful. Um and I don't want to feel like I'm avoiding them so much. And I do apologize for trampling all over you, Matt, when you're speaking there. Oh no worries, Ben. I was just gonna say beautiful art. Alright, so next up I have uh the next two things to talk about is courage and understanding and how those stories that we have for those. Because we really don't talk about the courage and understanding mechanics at all in our previous podcast. So first up, we have bold, which is when you get three courage. So depending on what stage of the game you're at, you get a different ability. I'm not really going to go into the results so much. I'm going to go into the abilities and how they work. So if it's during the showdown phase, you get stalwart, which is ignore being knocked down by brain trauma and intimidate actions. During the hunt phase, you're prepared. And when rolling to determine a straggler, add your hunt experience to your roll result. Matchmaker, when you are returning survivor once per year, you may spend an endeavor to perform intimacy. So what are you guys' thoughts on the three of these? Matchmaker is very handy. I think that's that how I think that's how we uh, we spammed so many people in that one campaign. We had a few survivors with Matchmaker that we kept taking out on hunts and uh, forcing intimacy to go on. And with Protect the Young... Uh, it was just an obscene amount of survivors eventually. Yeah. Um, essentially, Stoltwart is kind of marginal in its abilities. I mean, it's not terrible. Triumph is rubbish. Uh, I'm sorry, Hunt Phase Triumph, prepared, is rubbish. And Matchmaker is probably the best of these three. And it's got a great picture as well. It's got a picture of Lucy shoving some young survivor with some flowers off towards uh, a romantic encounter. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Uh, so, Matt, you want to see the truth for us? This is when you hit uh, your ninth checkbox and get full courage. Sure thing. Give me one second to get myself over there. Okay, so see the truth. You suddenly recall meeting a strange masked man who for a moment opened your second eyelids. What you saw filled your mouth with the taste of your own death. You get blinded, and then you taste death. If you are already blinded at least once, you don't suffer it again, so it doesn't force you to retire, essentially. And then on a taste death, you roll a d10. On a 1 to 2, you get... Uh, when your second eyelid is opened, the veil of darkness is lifted. You recall looking at the sky and viewing a horizon of titanic faces. Each face is different and peers at a different part of your body. Uh, gain the weak spot disorder and the following ability. Sweet battle. You may surge without spending survival. If you do, the surge must be, I'm sorry, the uh, action must be used to activate a weapon. So, Did you just say desurge? What? Did you just say D instead of V? Maybe. Carry on. So, uh, free surges, as long as you attack something, is pretty awesome. And if you have graves, you get to do sweet death uh, on a three and four as well. Uh, Five through, I'm sorry, three through eight is the generic one in the middle called bitter. 
and that is when your second eyelids opened, everything looks the same. There was no wonder and no mystery. Death was simply everywhere. A bitter flavor filled your mouth as you accepted your harsh reality. You gained the berserker fighting art and the following ability. Bitter frenzy. You may spend survival and use fighting arts, weapon specializations, and weapon mastery while frenzied. And that could be super duper handy. And then finally, we have Sour Death, which is a 9 or 10, or a 7 and 8 also, if you have Cannibalize. And that is, when your second eyelids open, you saw thousands of small life forms swimming through the air. They crawled over you, stealing tastes of your sweat and blood. Death was near, and you wondered how your fear tastes. A puckering sour flavor filled your mouth, and you decided that you must never die. Gain the following ability. Sour Death, when you are knocked down, you may encourage yourself. If you do, gain plus one strength token. Ugh. The sour death is just not nearly as good as sweet battle to me. Would you say it's sour? Uh, not no, Josh. Just no. I can't do the bad puns. It's making me salty. Rafael, what were you gonna say? I was gonna say actually, uh, I think um, all three of these are very good, and they have their own um, place within the game. Sweet battle is the most simplistic of all of them to use. It's particularly what you want on DPS characters. It's phenomenal when combined with blood paint, which, as you know, I can't get enough of. That sweet, sweet blood paint. Give me them bladders. So, Fed, you take you take sweet battle, you take blood paint, and then you add a Forsaker mask to it. Absolutely. We have that. We have that on an Acanthus Doctor. It's pretty good. Although we had to get rid of the weak spot disorder, which, because we had old drums, we could manage. Um, then Bitter Frenzy, well, you know, not incredibly amazing, um, because Frenzy, yeah, it's not fantastic. There is a couple of circumstances this is incredible, and one of those is when you've got the Perfect Slayer. You want Bitter Frenzy with Perfect Slayer. This is how you unlock its full potential and really get to go to town, and it's one of those situations where you don't mind that the weapon has high speed because it hits like a freaking truck. I think it is a perfect truck. Absolutely. And um, Sour Death is significantly better than it looks the first time. Of the three, um, on most survivors, this is the one I would want. Um, being able to encourage yourself is very useful. And the strength tokens have combinations with things like the um, a red fist. So a survival with red fist and sour death, amazing. Um, and also, there are certain other things um, that benefit from strength tokens. And I believe you guys got one of them in uh, in one of your recent play sessions. Yeah, I got a really cool crown from the uh, Sunstalker that I can't use without a strength token. So. Yep. Time for a sour death. Um, so yeah, I... Uh, this is, entire table is fantastic. The main issue with the whole thing is the blinded severe head injury. That's like the price you pay. Um, and, you know, weak spot disorder can be problematic at times. But for 90% of characters, except for like Leyline Walkers and Acanthus Doctors, they're absolutely happy to, um, to have a sweet battle. It's all good. All right, so next up we have the uh, understanding stories. So first up is Insight. So Insight is, um, if it happens in a showdown phase, you get analyzes At the start of the survivor's turn, if you are adjacent to the monster, reveal the top AI card and place it back on top of the deck. 
Uh, during the hunt phase, you get Explore. When you roll on the Investigation table, add plus two to your roll results. And Settlement phase is Tinker. When you are a returning survivor, gain plus one Endeavor to use the Settlement phase. I love almost all three of these. These are all actually really good. They are absolutely fantastic. And also, if you look at the tables, there's a lot of gaining of accuracy, gaining of movement, gaining of evasion. I think, yeah, um, Epiphany on a 10, you get plus one permanent strength. Um, sorry, Epiphany uh, on Tinker, the Tinker result, which is a settlement phase one. Um, but then the rest is like, these are premium stats. These are fantastic. Uh, and also, I mean, I love the artwork. You've got Alistair glaring at the monster. You've got Urza peering through the d- uh, darkness and cobwebs. And you've got Lucy just playing around with her head as she does. Yeah, I like, I like Analyze is nice. Like, you don't need to do raw headband. You can kind of see at the beginning of turn, like, do I need to get rid of this card? What can we do now? What's coming yep. up? It's just really strong. Uh, the Explorer for plus two on roll results on hunts pretty much mitigates a lot of death rolls. Yeah, yeah, and it allows you to hit some of the really rare stuff as well. It's it's very good. And then Tinker is just another endeavor. Uh, we had a lot of survivors that were Tinkers and Matchmakers, so you know they were just coming back with free babies, basically. Yeah, that kind of happens that you're quite likely to get to um, tinker quite a bit. It seems to happen unless you're looking to do understanding abuse. It's very common to get tinkers. All right. Matt, you have anything? Uh, Just echoing exactly what you guys said. Those are all very thumbs-up results. Yeah, I think it's actually quite hard to get the the Explore one, I think, is the rarest of the three. So, Matt, you want to do White Secret first? Go ahead, Fun. No, I was just going to say um, that that I, it's actually been a little while since I've encountered these because so much of what we do is playing as people of the stars, and those two tables get replaced. So I've forgotten how good um, Insight was. All right, so White Secret, uh, that is when you max out your understanding, and as a dream buried deep in memory suddenly surfaces, you feel her hot breath bathing your air, your ear, uh, hissing whispers. She had come to you bearing the secrets of the world, and you had merely forgotten until now. So you get lunacy and remember the story. So remember the story is you roll a d10. And on a 1 to 2, which extends to a 3 and 4 also, if you have Romantic. Uh, yeah, this is my favorite on this table, as it, I, don't know, I feel like it's probably going to be yours as well, folks. But uh, that is the story of the Ageless Man. So whoever rolls this is going to gain plus 1 permanent accuracy, plus 1 permanent strength, and most importantly, Ageless. So if you want you can no longer gain hunt XP if you don't want to. And you can hunt if you're retired. Which we made four of two weeks ago or something like that. Sorry, how about now? Hopefully that's better. Did you do something, Josh? I was trying to mute the bits, and I apparently muted everything. Alright, so last they heard was the Aegis bit, and not Peerless or okay. Walker. So let's let's rewind. So, Ageless, uh, you can choose not to get Hunt XP. Uh, story of the Survivor is the middle one. You get Quixotic and Peerless. And Peerless is when you gain Insanity, you gain an equal amount of Survival if you want. Which I don't know why you wouldn't want to. But And then the final one is a 9 or 10, or a 7, 8, 9, 10 if you have Barbaric Conviction. 
and you get the Leyline Walker ability. And the Leyline Walker ability is, while there is no armor or accessory gear in your gear grid, gain plus three evasion. So, how do you guys feel about these three? Ageless is, is top-notch. Peerless is really nice, especially if you get a lot of insanity. Uh, this extra survival is nice. Leyline Walker, it's good, but a party of four of them isn't great. <laughs> yeah, that is a little inside story there, where in our most recent campaign, we managed to do the understanding spam, and all four of our survivors rolled... 9-10, and we all got Leyline Walker, so all four survivors were, you know, going to run around naked and get plus three evasion because of it. And then I brought the survivor to go hunt, the Sunstalker, and he had five evasion on him, and then he got an accessory during the hunt, which is a really awesome accessory, but he lost the plus three evasion, so he couldn't do anything that he was supposed to do. He was just standing in front of the classroom in his underpants. Exactly. Fen, your thoughts? Well... Um, I think actually early game Leyline Walker is pretty damn good, but you don't want it in massively high quantities. Uh, once you reach a point where your gear is good enough to keep your survivors alive and rocking year after year after year, um, ageless becomes more and more valuable, and the plus one accuracy is quite a nice bonus as well. Um, this is one of the reasons I pick Romantic over Barbaric, because I would rather be rolling more ageless survivors than more leyline walkers. I will say I think leyline walkers get a lot stronger with expansions added in. There are some expansions in particular that really um, help co- compound it further because if you've got three evasion and you can put another four evasion on it or so or whatever else, it gets very powerful. Uh, it's also not bad to be a leyline walker savior although you will not, green savior that is, although you will not last very long. Um, but going ahead in the future, given that apparently saviors aren't going to be allowed to become ageless, from what I've gathered, um, it may be like Leyline Walk Green um, Savior Leyline Walkers may become like premium. So, you know, uh, the one thing is I don't really like um, Peerless. I don't think very much of it. It's kind of a meh ability. It has some benefits with um, like turning the leather mask into plus survival when you leave and things like that, but it's just not exciting. It's just solid. Alright, anything else on that or are we going to go into our next section? Let's keep on moving. Alright, next up we're going to talk about settlement events a bit. Um, there's a bunch of these. We're going to go through them kind of briefly. We're going to hit some of the bigger major ones and talk about them a little bit more, but uh, there, there's not too much to them. So, first up, I'm just going to grab these kind of randomly from the stack I have. So, first up, I have Hunt Reenactment. This is where you take your two survivors, your most, your favorite survivor and your least favorite survivor, and uh, make them battle it out and possibly kill one of them. It's not great. doesn't really give you anything nice. And hopefully, you just hope nothing happens too bad. What do you guys think? Yeah, this is a, a weird one. Thematically, it's really funny, though. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little funny that you have two people fight and then accidentally, you know, hurt yourself or the other one. Um, next up is Glossigolia where we all just start rambling. Again, kind of just flavor-wise, nothing too great on it. That's the one where you can't do any language communications, right? Yeah, so you, you just kind of can't talk. Um, I'm sorry, language endeavors. Science endeavors. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, there's some kind of cool things in there. Like, so if you roll like an A plus, you get plus two understanding, and you get the title Father of Words, since you can still understand everything, um, and it kind of fixes it. But it's it's an interesting mechanic. Uh, next up, we have Strangers in the Dark, which I think this is a fun event because you find this random stranger typically. That's I think what is it like a seven or eight? Um, this you find a stranger. He's like, no, I've been here the whole time, and he has this zero present fighting secret fighting art, which is really awesome. I believe we only got this one time in our campaigns, and then we immediately lost the guy before we were able to use him. Yeah, he died to a worm. Yeah, I, I think like this is on the whole like a nice event because while it's random what happens, most of it's sort of pretty decent. You know, one to two, you gain some resources. Three to four, there's sort of a bit of like you know you can't depart with male survivors, but your female survivors do get a ton of survival. Um, the five to six is probably the worst one of the bunch because of the chance of killing but it's not a returning survivor it's a different survivor so you can send a bunch of jeffers uh that is spots you don't care about to do the roles and get advantage from the endeavors you mentioned as well the secret presence dude is amazing and then the last one you know it's fine plus one population and a founding stone nothing wrong with that either so i like this event it's always fun when it turns up all right, next up is Cracks in the Ground, and this is one of those, got ya, you fell no, and died. No. <laughs> this one sucks. Josh, why don't you tell us about this one? You are the expert in Cracks, after all. Oh, God. So this is, a, you roll a D10 on a 1. Anyone wearing, any return servers with heavy gear are dead. Archive all, any heavy gear in their gear grids. It's also their bodies. 2 through 5, the return survivors with the lowest movement falls into the crack, roll off in case of a tie. So... One through five, one person's at least. One, someone might not be dead if everyone doesn't have heavy gear. Uh, and then six plus, you find a fountain stone. And then, like, they have some extra Endeavor stuff, but nothing great. Um, um, actually, Vapor Scar is kind of interesting. I was just reading that. Yeah, Vapor Visions is actually really good as well. The Mad Oracle ability is kind of broken um, because of stuff like Rawhide and the similar, the, and also the one we looked at before with the... Um, uh, you know, if you're next to the monster. Um, yeah. yeah, it's only once per showdown, but because there's other ways you can stack evasion tokens, you can create builds, especially using Katars, that become very hard to hit. Um, so it's at least interesting, but, I mean, the 1-6 to six roll of memory loss set your weapon proficiency to zero is kind of garbage, so you need to do this with somebody who doesn't have any weapon proficiency and then get their weapon proficiency up. On the whole... Fuck this card. Like, this card is awful. Yeah, it's, it's, this is not one of the, I mean, the two Endeavor spots are kind of nice to give you those possibilities, but still, with the Vapor Scars, you roll a D10 and a 1 through 6, you're dead. And the only ability you get is your Minty Bash, which is nice, but. I kind of love on Vapor Scar the wording on there. That is, like, pretty close to Rocks Fall, You All Die. You know, it is. It is, and and this is one of those complaints that you see cropping up here and there and everywhere about the game. Is this kind of stuff is just not not nice. Um, I, you know, I, I cracks in the ground is one of those cards that I would take out of the settlement event deck and not feel remotely guilty about doing it because it's just unfun. It causes. It, it's fine in a solo play. Um, but when you're playing with like three other people, this happening to someone and losing all that, the potential, the heavy gear and everything is just like, 
it, it just sucks so much. You can this can destroy an entire campaign, and you know the only way to get around it is by never playing with heavy gear. Yeah, which is just like that's all right. You know, it, I tell you one thing though. It does like almost nothing in People of the Sun because they can't freaking wear heavy gear, so they very rarely have any on them. Maybe have the old heavy weapon, but you know, so it's not quite so relevant there. But still, it's just. I'm sorry. This is one of those cars. I'm really hoping they address and fix um, in 1.5. I. It's just. This is what I. Th- this is what the the section of design in Kingdom Death, which I think is, is antiquated and n- uninteresting. All right. So that's crack of the ground. Let's go to the next one. Dark Dentist. I like the thought of this card. I don't like how the cost. I don't like the roll afterwards. Um, and the benefits aren't great. So men bones, it costs you three bones or a skull. You fix the, you heal the shattered jaw, which isn't bad, especially if you, if you, have, a, if you have a skull on you. So the cost is cheap. Uh, you get monster tooth dentures, which is four bones or one Large flat tooth. So I guess if you have a flat tooth, it's not bad. And you get plus one permanent strength once per lifetime. So for a flat, large flat tooth, I can see it, but not for four bone. The metal jaw, which is two iron, you gain the fallen ability metal maw. Your fist and tooth gain sharp, which is pretty cool. Thing is, when you go to do the dentures or the metal jaw, you roll a d10. On a one to two, you die, and you get a skull resource. Uh, three through five, the surgery fails. You suffer the shattered, shattered jaw injury. Six ten, through ten, the surgery... Surgery is successful, so there's a 50% chance that it doesn't work, a 20% chance you die. And you still have to spend two iron regardless. Yeah. Basically, this card reads, a cloaked woman enters a settlement, and your survivors ignore her because they don't have the resources to do it or they don't want to do the risk. So Because their insurance away. plan does not cover it. Absolutely not. So this is this is one of these cards that effectively year after year after year we've just seen us being blank. You can't plan for it to turn up, so you can't take advantage of it. Um, and Metal Moor, as cool as it is, actually there's other ways of, of getting effectively the same ability under Acid Palms. So this and two math, two iron. By the time you're hunting iron, you're trying to build lantern armor usually or something else. Right. So. Yeah. Eh. So next up I have is Haunted. Um, the survivor with the lowest hunt XP uh, is convinced that a power presence is nearby, and they kind of go crazy. I wonder if they, they actually know the the Watchers nearby. That's what they're thinking about. Um, so Could be. Nothing great. If you roll 1 through 3, you can't spend any endeavors this year unless you exile the uh, crazy guy. Um, and then if you have Song of the Brave, you get a different... Uh, you get some Insanity... On a five, four through seven. Uh, otherwise, you get minus one endeavors and all the returns to our set their insanity zero. Um, if you have a momentum mori and you get an eight through ten, you could spend two endeavors and uh, create a small memento of a felled monster from the past. If they do, um, the survivor gains plus two understanding, one D insanity, and the zero present secret fighting arch, which is really nice. Um, otherwise, if they don't have that. They get plus two strength, plus one accuracy, and the fallen ability. Possessed cannot use weapon specialization, weapon mastery, or fighting arts. That's not that great. Well, it sucks. I mean, it actually, like, really sucks. Um, and it has some... Well, ultimately, like, Momentum Mori, how many times do you build Momentum Mori? Because it's quite far up the tech tree. Yeah, it's, it's not, not something like, I high priority. Exactly. Um, 
you know, this is just kind of one of those cards that sometimes turns up and randomly screws you over. Yeah. All right. Next we have Dark Trader. This is another, you know, man comes into town and uh, tries to sell you stuff for really expensive prices. So uh, for six resources, you get Strange Brew, which on a 10, you get plus one permanent accuracy. Otherwise, everything else really sucks. You get a pink stone. Three through nine, that's a fountain stone. So that's for two resources, which isn't bad. Uh, 10, you get Immortal. One through two, it's useless rock. That's maybe the only one I might do if I want a fountain stone. And then it's this shiny, sexy jewelry thong, which is seven resources. Uh, one through two, you look amazing. If it wasn't only so uncomfortable, suffer minus one permanent evasion, which is freaking horrible. Three through nine, it falls apart as soon as the trader leaves, so you don't get anything. On a 10, it feels wearing it feels incredible, gain plus one permanent luck for seven resources. This is another card that's basically blank whenever you draw it. It's It sucks, though, because this really could be a good one to have if the costs weren't so silly. Like, And I, if every bad thing wasn't twice as likely as the good? Yeah, I mean, the shiny, sexy, jeweled thong might be interesting if it was, like, no resources, but you had to spend an endeavor there. And that would be the only time that I'd be like, okay, maybe I'll take a 1 in 10 shot of getting some lucky underpants. It's You can make this more interesting by making that seven resources for the promo order thong instead. Um, maybe five resources or something. But that's actually... I can't remember what that thong does, but I think it's made of rawhide and something to do with insanity gain or immunity to insanity loss or something. I mean, that's more interesting. Um, I think it would be nice if he turned up and sold some unique rare items. Um and then maybe if you didn't buy anything, he was scheduled to return in a certain number of years because quite often he just catches you off guard. And even if you did you know, want to buy anything from him, usually you can't afford more than the pink stone. That makes sense. That would be an interesting concept, having him come back after a set number of yeah. years. I mean, you can come back and visit a few times. I mean, visually, though, I mean, this guy's fantastic. Big fat dude on the throne, four cloakmen carrying it around. It's brilliant. Trying to sell you underpants. Yeah, but uh, ultimately, most of these are, are like 10% chance of something amazing and then 90% chance of garbage. And the pink stone's probably the best one of the bunch because two resources for a chance of the immortal disorder, most, you know, that's not bad. Uh, and, it, you know, a lot of the time, then you get a founding stone that's actually useful and meaningful. You can use a, one founding stone to get max understanding on four survivors at the cost of a hunt, so... And it's, it's a bad. one or two, you, you just realize you bought a useless rock. So it's not like yeah. it's bad. It's just you got nothing. Yeah, it's not minus one evasion or you're dead. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have Rivalry. Oh, ugh, I just pronounced that. Oh, I butchered that. I'm not even going to try again because I'm going to butcher it again. Rivalry. So how do you guys feel about this? This is where two of you guys fight. And then uh, to try to get rid of it, you have to spend basically two endeavors. And someone might die. Or you might get partnership, which is weird it's it's a very aggravating card to come out but it's i it's forced i guess so it's somewhat interesting it's not one of those like the last two we just showed off where it's kind of just like i'm just gonna ignore this i'm just waiting for the card to get on the stream uh so this is on what a one through three the two people beat each other up and neither departs next phase which is actually the best outcome 
On a four through eight, uh, the two duke it out, and one of them suffers a gaping chest wound, and you add rivalry next year. And then on a nine or ten, oh, I'm sorry, they actually speak with each other in calm voices and gain plus one survival and plus one understanding. So that's the best option there. But the majority of what's going to happen there is someone's going to get a gaping chest wound, and you just add rivalry again. Yeah. So... One of the big issues of this is, of course, the rivalries between two returning survivors. And as we know, returning survivors tend to have more value than your normal average everyday survivor, especially given that you don't know when rivalry is going to happen. So then the lingering effects of the duel are like a very high risk. And I mean, drawing partnership out of the innovation deck is actually really good. Not because partnership is great, but because you've taken an a kind of crappy innovation and stripped it out of the deck. Um, and partnership's okay if you get it for this cost. Um, but, I mean, what is it? It's 20% chance of getting it, and the rest of the time and you lose one or both of them. So it kind of sucks. Although, interestingly, in one of the first campaigns I played with lots of my friends back in August, they decided to roll on this table um, because they were all in a lull, random, woo, kind of, who cares if people die sort of thing. And um, and two of them got partnered up, which was um, seemed to be fairly entertaining. And then one of them promptly died the following year. Um, but this, I like the idea of this card, but I think the numbers and the balance are all wrong. All right. Agreed. Like, thematically, it makes sense, but just the numbers are, feel kind of off. So next up, I have Acid Storm, which sounds like it's going to be horrible, but besides the one result where each return survivor must archive a gear card of their choice, it's not really that bad. It's You have to skip the next hunt, or you get a, you actually get a piece of scrap in the settlement. Yeah. And, um, I'd say archiving a piece of gear as well. Normally you've got something that's cost one resource to make, that you, you know, a basic resource, so generally that doesn't hurt you too bad. Yeah. So next up we have uh, Heat Wave. Uh, so this is where you can't use any heavy or fur gear. Situational? This one can be really sucky under certain circumstances. Um, like really a pain in the ass. Uh, it's another one of the reasons why it's kind of like white lion armor is falls lower down on the tiers because you can get caught quite badly with this. But to be honest, screaming antelope armor is also fur armor. Um, I think this does weigh a little bit into why people love rawhide and leather. Uh, mm, I mean, I, I think of the kind of random sort of coming out of nowhere events that do occur, Heatwave and Acid Rainer feel fairer. They do kind of screw you over, but you get to make meaningful decisions about it. So I'm okay with it. I don't know. What about you guys? don't have a ton of experience with this one. We don't seem to want to draw this one on a lot of occasions. And when we do draw it, we don't have heavy gear, so we really don't care. I think the one time we drew it, we just we did fine fluids and we just made it work. Yeah, that's right. It was during our yeah. last campaign. We just we found some water. Exactly. That's what I mean. You can mitigate this, so it's not bad. All right, next up. It's I a good design, actually. Yeah. yeah. So next up, this is actually one of my... I find this one fun, even though it has some bad things to it is a triathlon of death i i just find this a fun event to do with uh especially if absolutely four players on the table super super amusing to do this one so this one's where everyone kind of tests uh, different uh attributes 
and uh, depending on what rank you get, different things happen to you. Uh, sadly, fourth place typically means something pretty bad. Um, and if you get fourth place in everything, they're dead. But you can kind of choose what survivors you want. So you could take your gimp and uh, just put him in the fight and hope he does really bad because he doesn't have good scores. Fan, your thoughts on uh, this? I'm absolutely fine with this card. As you said, first of all, it's you get to nominate a different survivor. Um, secondly, there's that cool effect of if you, the settlement only has one survivor, you get last man standing, which is really good if you've only got a one survivor settlement. Um, last man standing, interestingly, can potentially allow you to get very far in a campaign if the one survivor is is it the right kind, so it's cool. Um, one weird thing about this, if you play this as a solo player, you pick somebody to go first place in every single thing, because they worded it, each player nominates a different survivor, whereas it should just be nominate four survivors. If possible, each player nominates a different survivor or something like that. Um, so that's one of those weird things when you play with less than four players. Uh, but yeah, as you, as you said, you can just chuck trash guys into this. You don't have to use your best survivors. Or if they've got like um, really good movement, understanding, and strength, you can put them in knowing that they're going to get all these nice bonuses. I'm, I'm again, I'm, go- I'm good with this. It's got some bad stuff in it, but you you choose the risk. All right, so now, next I have another. It's a weird one. It's the weird dream. This is, this is an interesting card. I, I like the roleplay element of this. It feels really out of place in the game, though. Yeah, it's funny. It, it it's definitely different the role play element. But yeah, it just the first time we drew this, I was super confused. Like, why is this card in here? And, and for what people don't know, what it is is basically one of the returning survivors rolls some dice on the table and has to make a story up. And then everyone says if it was well told or if it was badly told, and doesn't really matter. And if you're playing by yourself, all the survivors get plus three insanity. It's kind of meh. It's cool if you're playing by yourself, especially like. Not bad at all. This is like an odd one, it, and it can cause some uncomfortable situations around a table if the wrong person has to uh, has to do the, the the story. If they're not a particularly good storyteller or they're a bit uncomfortable about it, it can be weird. Uh, on the other hand, if you play with a bunch of role players, which I do, then this can be incredibly entertaining. The right people telling the stories are fantastic. Except you have to tell the damn story in reverse which almost always causes confusion and problems. I had to do that, I believe, once. It's one of the funnier settlement cards to have to do on stream, so it's amusing in that aspect. Yeah, I was saying, I think this stands out as kind of like an odd, an oddity, but I also think more settlement cards should have been like this, because it does encourage another sort of level of experience and play and, and that pseudo role play light kind of a thing um i think if the settlement event deck had gone in the direction of weird dream we we might be in a better place and i might have a lot less complaints about it all right so up next i have open maw this is this is interesting this is i have a spare survivor i'll throw them in a hole and i don't care if they die that's typically how i do it uh we actually did this so what you get to do is you roll as many dice as you want but if any of them are doubles you're dead right yeah, any doubles are dead. Uh, and we played this at one of the cons here, and Aaron's like, oh, I'm going to go for it. And he rolled he rolled enough to get a 32+, plus, and he got a Lantern Sword somehow. Wah, wah. So we got a Lantern Sword. I think it was year two, 
maybe three, and then we just killed everything really, really fast because it was just way too powerful. Well, in contrast to that, uh, when I played, um, Chris decided to send his survivor in and came out with a lantern sword and declared it after about five lantern years to be the worst piece of garbage he'd ever used and tossed it into a stash and never used it again because the damn thing has like a 28% chance of missing every time you swing with it. Yeah, the, the, uh, that one is kind of bad. Yeah, yeah, it's a very all-or-nothing weapon. Um, on the whole, like you say, you can just it's nice that you can nominate any survivor in there. Um, I find it a little weird that it says survivors prove their bravery by running into it, and they don't gain any courage. I mean, quite often when it says prove your bravery or something along those lines, you get plus one courage as well. They have um, some courage in the results, but yeah, you would they think do, it would just yeah. be plus one and then plus whatever else you get. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ultimately, this is fine because it's your choice if you want to risk it. Um, it's And that's what I like. I, I don't mind the fact that you can die uh, or suffer a dismembered leg or anything like that. I'm okay with that kind of shit uh, when it is your choice to go to the table in the first place. So, you know, I, I just wish maybe the rewards near the top end were a bit more exciting. Yeah. All right, next up I have a nickname. This is this is a silly fun one to do. Uh, typically doesn't give you... can give you some negative things, but it can also give you some positive things, which isn't too bad. So I'm trying to look here. Minus one or plus one accuracy, minus one or plus one strength, or minus one plus one speed. So nothing horrible. So it's I always thought this was a fun little side thing to do for everyone to get new nicknames. Yeah, this one always seems to get a bit of a chuckle and a positive response around the table. Even if people get a little screwed over in the results, they don't seem to mind too much. And heck, the last time I got involved with it, I managed to roll minus one speed. Yeah, super happy about that. All right, Matt, anything from you? It's just a very meh one. I mean, it's nice when you roll tens, except for the last one, which I think is what I usually wind up rolling a ten on, if anything. Uh it's just kind of cool. This it's, is in that category with weird dream of like, there should be more of this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a good flavor settlement event card. It's just weird because it's a departure from a lot of the more standard ones. All right, next up, I have Elder Council, which I don't think you like ever get then because... Or I've never do, had it. Do. Never had it. You never get the right results. So this is actually a really cool one. This is where you take everyone's hunt XP in the whole settlement... And you add them all together, and then if you have a couple of innovations, you get to add a D10 result to it. And then depending on what your total result is, you get a different outcome. And this is actually how you unlock the Beast of Sorrow, which is a 21 through 50. Um, and, but like the cool thing is, if you have a hundred plus, you spend an endeavor. If you do, you nominate a survivor of one or less hunt XP, and they gain age one and age two, and uh, they gain those benefits again when they edge up again. So that's kind of really cool. Yeah, that result is phenomenally good. Um, this is just another good event. It's, there's no drawback or nasty stuff to this. And it's okay for there to be nasty stuff on some of the settlement events, uh, as long as there's stuff like this to balance it out. Um, I've just never seen this card. I did check. It is in my deck, but we've never drawn it. Yeah, I mean, some of them give you Year minus... Of play and we've never seen it. Yeah, some of them give you minus endeavors and resources, but they give you a plus to it, so... It's not too bad. I find this fun. I, I like this one. It's kind of cool. It definitely gives you, like, a, it's one of the nice ones that give you a benefit for kind of spreading the love around and keeping your settlement alive and intact. 
So next up, uh, this is this is the really nice card in the deck is the Lights in the Sky. This is a uh, you get plus one or plus two to all Endeavor rolls, which is awesome. Uh, if you have Graves, you can roll and uh, on a six plus, which is really a four plus, because you get plus two to re- these results also. Uh, you add three armor to each hit location, which is solid. It's like a super shrine. Um, the other stuff, nothing too great, but that that's really the strong part. But the plus two to settlement event rolls is awesome. We ended up using this on Intimacy and getting like 16 babies in a year because we also had like a ton of death. So we had all the endeavors. Yeah. Um, I actually think it's worth saying face painting is actually quite good. Getting a stranger in the dark settlement event is not bad. And the quitoxic disorder is not bad either. Um, of course, you know, you've got the plus, um, plus one or plus two to the results. So that sort of does kind of swing things around a bit. Um, Interestingly, you may notice that fa- uh, the face painting roll as well goes one to five and then eight plus. So that's another Poots classic there. Um, the inner lantern one though is just like, what the hell? Like one to five is amazing, which is a one to four. And then six plus is like, uh, you know, unless we get the gambler chest changes to make Skull Eater interesting and desirable, that's blech. But at least you don't have to do it. So, you know. This is this is a good card. It is fun and interesting and like yeah, it's cool. And you can make all the babies. And babies are overrated. All right, uh, let's go to a bad card next. Let's, let's go to plague. Everyone hates the plague. Uh, so sweepness, ew, sickness sweeps through the village or through the settlement, and uh, survivors are stricken without warning, made too weak to even carry themselves. Select four survivors with at least one hunt XP. They are infected. Each rolls a d10. One, two, they are dead. Three through eight, if they have bloodlet in, they're drained and weak, but manage to survive. You must skip the next hunt to recover the lost blood. If you don't have that, your body tries to fight the infection. Unless you receive treatment, see below, you will die at the end of the settlement phase. Nine through ten, you make a full recovery. So, and then there's option. If you have ammonia, you can try to make a treatment. Um, One through eight, you heal one of them. Nine plus, everyone gets healed. But this is something that targets... The people you've hunt with and makes it a little bit harder to, you know, grow together. If you don't have ammonia or bloodletting, this can end campaigns very quickly. So if it turns up early on, it is absolutely horrific. Um, but, I mean, later on, because you will almost always have ammonia, you can handle it. And it's good that, you know, bloodletting has some additional use. So this... I think this lands within the category of, yeah, this is a bad card, but this is a kind of punishment that I think's sort of fair because it is, once you got past the gotcha of it hitting you for the first time, you can mitigate it, you can play around it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I don't like it, but I'm, I'm okay with it. All right. Next up, we have, uh, everyone's favorite, Klingon Mist. If anyone tell us is, about this one? This is a fun one. I'm just trying to find it. Yeah. Uh, I just read, read this. I didn't realize it was between a thick green mist. I didn't know the mist was green. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you get this thick green mist. Um, which hides away the settlement. On a one, two, three, uh, the skin, when the mist touches skin, bright red boils that bloom into existence. Uh, and all returning survivors have to skip the next hunt. And Tom Jane shoots his son at the end of the movie. Um, on a 
four to seven. If you have ammonia, then one survivor douses themselves in urine and runs through the settlement, clearing the mist away. Um, they get plus three understanding, but minus one permanent love for being so gross. This is where the mighty Jeffer in our campaign shine, because that was his job. Um, and the, on a no, the mess grows thicker, and the returning survivors each gain a random disorder. On eight, nine, or a ten, if you have a guidepost, then no problem. You get back to the settlement, but you have to draw a new replacement one. So effectively, on an eight, nine, or a ten, this card is just blank with a guidepost. But if you don't have one, then you have to go make. The, you have to either go on another hunt immediately. You don't get to depart. You don't get to change gear grids. You have to lug all the resources you're carrying already out. Um, so high risk, or you become the starting survivors for a new settlement. Um, so obviously if you get hit by a clinging mist early on, this is, can be incredibly powerful because it, you should have all of your best gear carried with you. You've got a pile of resources. You can go dash off to a new settlement, start over and get incredibly confused why the tyrant's present because I thought there was only one of him, but Oh look, the senile old doddering fool has set up another settlement nearby as well. So yeah, it's, um, clinging mist is fantastic. Um, the fact that you get choices on what you're doing is great. Um, you guys have had this a few times, haven't you? In our private one, yes, we have. We we did this about three times. I think we got it like a fourth time, and we decided to go on another fight because we were just done. We're like, okay, we could go back with full lantern gear set and a full leather set and pretty much all top end gear, guitar mastery, and yeah, bow mastery and shield mastery and. I think we should have in retrospect. I think we had the uh, Forsaker mask and the the God mask too, no? We had, if you had the Forsaker mask, you could have gone after legendaries on the, the fourth run, which would have been quite interesting for you. Yeah, it, it would have been interesting. Um, I have a question. If you restart your settlement, can you switch campaign types? No. Technically, you basically go back to first story and you can't even change your expansions or anything. But I don't see any reason why you can't you know, switch up the expansions a bit. Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't change campaign types because then that would create... Outside of... If, if you want to do house rules, that's fine. But officially, no, you're just resetting your timeline. Um, otherwise, you... You know, you could end up with a warrior of the sun with a constellation or a... What's wrong with that? Well, or even that more daft than that. And it's perfectly possible if you were doing that. Uh, you could end up with a constellation warrior of the sun with multiple savior abilities. Now, I've done a warrior of the sun with mo- multiple savior abilities anyway, and that's stupid enough. So, um, yeah, <laughs> you can't. And if you want a house rule, it be warned, it's very abusable. All right, so we got two more events left. Uh, I left the uh, best two for last. Uh, yay! <laughs> okay, should we have Skullita then? Yeah, Skullita's next. So uh, you randomly choose a returning survivor, and uh, they get three plus three insanity. Um, if there are no returning survivors, you give a random survivor plus three insanity, and they get the marrow hunger ability, um, which means whenever murder or skull eater settlement event is drawn, they're nominated. So on a one or two, the skull eater's dead. Uh, three through seven, uh, he goes unnoticed. He gets plus one permanent strength and plus one courage. Add the murder settlement event to the timeline next year. Eight through nine, the other survivors redirect the Skull Eater's hung- hunger. They may spend two endeavors to replace Marrow Hunger Impairment with Binge Eating Disorder if they don't 
the murder settlement event to the timeline. Ten, the Skull Eater may cure themselves. They lose all survival and sanity and skip the next hunt to remove the marrow hunger impairment. If they don't, add murder settlement event to the timeline next year. On the whole, Skull Eater's not terrible in itself because you've got lots of choices and they might both kind of suck, but at least you, you're not forced to constantly put murder onto the timeline for reasons which we will all groan about when we look at the next card. Um, so in itself, Skull Eater, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fine with. Um, it, it's, it wouldn't be bad in isolation at all. In fact, it's kind of a cool concept and interesting, although I'm not sure what the problem with the Skull Eater is in a settlement with a bunch of cannibals. I, I don't know. Maybe he wants them while they're still alive. Also, it's kind of fun to note that with Marrow Hunger, you can be nominated and under murder, you there are two survivors who are nominated. So whereas I think the intention is supposed to be the Skull Eater, he's nominated as the murderer. He can actually be nominated as the person getting murdered. Well, maybe it's uh, he finally picked the person who shouldn't try to eat their head and uh, they kill him instead. Yeah, yeah, maybe you know it's it's certainly you can come up with a lot of logical reasons um, story wise to cover what happens, but it's, it's kind of a fun little quirk of the uh, of the wording. Matt, anything on uh, Skull Eater? Nothing different than what you guys said, really. All right, so everyone's favorite event: murder. Murder. Someone in the settlement has been murdered. The survivor with the highest hunt XP is a victim. They are dead. The murderer, the survivor with the highest insanity, was caught in the act. And it's a waiting punishment. I like how they're just a wait punishment. They don't try to run away. Uh, and then you select uh, one of the tables to roll on depending on what you currently have. So it's based off your society principle. So if you have collective toil, uh, the murderer is banished and you add strangers in the dark settlement event to the timeline three years from now. Um, all the departing survivors gain one random fighting art. On a seven plus, the murderer is sent into darkness. They return with one iron strange resource and the immortal disorder. Kind of cool. Except uh, darkness, one through three. The murderer is slaughtered, and their blood is painted onto the bodies of the survivors, empowering them. The party survivors this length in your game, plus two survival and one armor to each hit location. Always a good choice. Four plus, the murderer becomes the undisputed boss of the settlement and gains plus three hunt XP. Each player selects one fighting art and one disorder. The murderer must take all of them, replacing any existing fighting arts or disorders they have. And this is where it comes interesting. Is, is it of their choice, or is it random because it doesn't say random? Uh, if there's no society principle, one through three, the murderer is killed. Four through seven, the other survivors in settlement cannot determine the truth and roughly freely accused. This year, departed survivors get plus five insanity and minus two survival, which kind of sucks. Eight through ten, the murderer is herald as a fiercest warrior in the settlement, and they gain plus one permanent strength, plus one courage and understanding, and a Skullhelm gear card. Add the settlement event to the timeline 1d5 years from now. So what's everyone's thoughts on murder? Yay, Murder! This always seems to come up at the most inopportune times. Yeah, always at the always at the worst times. Fan, I know I know you you purposely don't age up people so they don't get murdered. Yes. I think this card could have been interesting, except it targeting the hunt the survivor with the highest hunt XP. And I'm pretty sure that the reason for doing that decision design wise was thematic, because the person who's doing the murdering is jealous of the, uh, you know, the the person with lots of experience, and it's just this is a garbage, hard, um, like causes hard feelings and problems, and it's not a good way of of going about doing this entire process at all. Um, 
in fact, three weeks ago, um, we drew this card, and Chandy wasn't present at the session, so we just tossed the card out of the deck and drew a new one, and I added one to the cheating track, because he was the highest survivor. He'd have got murdered, not even present, you know? And I was like, well, that's pretty atrocious. He's been playing this survivor since the very beginning of the game. Um, he already lost uh, his other survivor to murder, so um, for reasons. He had two with the same amount of high tech speed. And I was like, well, you know, I would be ballistic if this happened. It's just, fuck it. So we took it out of the deck, and it's gone from the deck for the rest of the campaign because we just don't want to deal with it. Um, it's it's an anti-fun card. It's It should be interesting, and I'm sure there's going to be attempts with the gambler's chest to make it interesting. Um, ultimately, there are some uses to it. If you're playing to try and get... Um, green armor then accept darkness and having the murder happen and picking the disorders means you can uh, build what you need to get Griswoldo sorted out so that's like something um, although solo you, again you can't do it because you only get to pick one fighting art and one disorder which is like because it says player you know each player um, this, th- this is this card is like in fact, the, the entire settlement deck, and I'm going to go a little bit off into the history of it now, is I know and recognize where this deck comes from. Um, this is Warhammer Quest, this entire deck. Um, not exactly matched up, but basically in Warhammer Quest, when you spent time in a settlement, you would have to roll on random events that would happen to you. Um and the idea of those was it was just sort of interesting things that happened around in the settlement from one day to the next. And they might be good, they might be bad, but on the whole, like the worst thing that happened, would you'd get chucked out of the settlement um, and have to wait for everyone else to, to um, come out before you go into the next adventure, or maybe you'd lose some gold. Or if you were the Bretonian knight, you'd fucking die in a duel because, yay, Bretonian knight sucks. Um and that's basically that mechanic turned all the way up to 11 with all sorts of nonsense and bullshit happening. And murder is pretty much the pinnacle of this crappy 1995 design that has barely evolved or been improved. I frankly am sick to death with the settlement thing as a whole. And murder is like murder and um, cracks in the ground are just cards that I want to toss out of the deck and not deal with because they they are no fun. They are just bad design. They are unpleasant. They can cause hard feelings in groups. They force you to play in a way which is completely contrary to the way you're, you know, the rest of the game's trying to tell you to. Um, and numerous times you will just find people talking about how murder or cracks in the ground wiped out some survivor when they weren't far away from completing their weapon um, proficiency. And I'm frankly like, I I don't want to be playing a game where I am sitting there going, okay, well let's make sure our shield and fist and tooth survivors have one less hunt XP than the ones doing the bullshit weapons um, proficiencies that we don't care about just so they don't get murdered. Let's not put heavy armor on them or, or fur or whatever, just to avoid other certain things. It's like, why can't in a sandboxy game, I explore and enjoy myself a bit more. And frankly, I think settlement events are ripe for a good expansion. 
Um, this is one of the weak points of the game, and in, I take a whole out, on a score of ten. This is a whole minus one point. This this deck. Um, so yeah, we kind of reached this boiling point, and murder's been <laughs> the bit that's made me like finally snap. Um, although I will say we haven't talked about the two promo cards, so I wouldn't mind chatting about those afterwards. Um, but yeah, it's just fuck murder. And this damn thing better get looked at in 1.5. Otherwise, I'm just going to be playing in the future with the house rule that basically any time a death occurs caused by the settlement event cards, just tick skip the next hunt phase for that particular survivor because rocks fall and you die is not a good way to play. Um, and I am done there. That's my rant over. Do you guys have anything to say? I could definitely sympathize with that just because, you know, you, uh, your strategy and your gameplay and everything, you kind of baby these characters. And I know it's part of it is kingdom death, but you don't want that random death for no apparent reason other than LOL, you die. Rocks fall and you die and roll a one and you die is just, that's like 20 year old mechanics. And, you know, that's like D and D first edition, Ha ha, have you ever met the floor mimic? Well, you stepped in a room with a floor mimic. You're dead kind of thing. Or, you know, uh, and it's just kind of counter to every other part of the experience. And I know there are some people out there who embrace it and go, oh, yeah, well, this is what makes the game interesting and difficult. But I'm like, this is artificial difficulty. This is not an interesting way of making the game difficult. I mean, we haven't got to him yet, but the level three Dung Beetle Knight is how you make the game difficult in an interesting manner you know this isn't um and you know i like the idea of murder as an event i just think that the way it targets is it's just it could have been better i mean how would you have had to target someone if you changed it I, i would frankly have some random survivor in the settlement get murdered or um like some random survivor is the murderer and they have to choose someone to get murdered maybe. Um, so, you know, you've got that whole like potential role playing potent, uh, you know, situation where you could have somebody going, well, I'm going to murder them. Haha. <laughs> and, um, that would be interesting when you play with the variant where people have limited resources because all of a sudden, you know, you got, uh, it's the version where everyone takes separately their own resources from the monster and has their own pool. So you have to trade between each other. You know, that's like actually in the rule book. Um, so it's one variant you can play. Uh, I don't know. I mean, so many of these other things just target like a survivor of your choice. Uh, maybe I think a card just shouldn't have been made. Actually, I'm just, fuck it. Just get, just ultimately, um, I'm going to wait until I see what the gambler's chest does with murder because it's meant to do something. And that's when I make a decision on how I feel about it ultimately. But as it stands, I think the way I'm going to play with a settlement event deck, if it doesn't change, is I am going to deal out the cards in advance and write them all down on the timeline. And just this is not when I'm playing solo. When I'm playing solo, I can roll with the punches. When I'm playing with like three other people and we've got a full thing, so we can go there and we can see what's happening and you know whatever. This is a variant where there's a seer in the village who's told everyone the timeline of what's going to happen going ahead, and so we can look at the bullshit and go, okay, well we know that like in Lantern Year 15, somebody's going to get murdered, so we need to make sure there's a patsy for it. Um, just because I want some kind of interesting choice 
in how I play, and I don't want shit like that to happen. The other, the other way is basically the way I've seen a lot of people do, which is they every time you draw a card from the settlement event, you don't put it back in the deck, so murder happens once. And, you know, that's it's a bit suck, but, you know, that's one way of doing it. It also means murder becomes more likely the longer you go without drawing it, so a bit of high stakes there. That's pretty interesting. I like that idea of uh, you can only draw a settlement event once. Yeah, it is. Um, it is quite a fun one, and it makes those events that trigger multiple reoccurrences themselves or other events more interesting. So, yeah, I just think, well, we'll see what one point five does. But this is definitely on my list of things that I will be house ruling and home brewing in some fashion. I might even be tossing the entire settlement event deck out and coming up with something new um, to replace it. But I, I want. I want punishment, I want difficulty, I want hard choices. I don't want stuff that will like beat the shit out of me um out of nowhere. And being blindsided by murder is is just like such a an unpleasant experience. Yeah, part of it it's like you want it to be like it's your fault that you died. Like I did something wrong, something I, I made a mistake. Something wasn't right. It's my fault I died. Not just, oh, I just died because something stupid happened. Yeah. All right. So is that going to be it for this evening, gentlemen? How good. much more do we have on the agenda? Uh, we still have innovations and hunt events. There's quite a bit. And some other weapon specializations stuff. and disorders and fighting arts as well. Yeah, still quite a lot of material. Um, I would like to finish on something a bit more kind of like happy. So how about we um, do weapon, um, the weapon innovation section, and then we can do the rest next time. Because right. uh, we spent about like uh, 20, 30 minutes running through the, the weapons available in the core game because there is some cool stuff. Oh, as a reminder, the promo settlement events, yes. Uh, I'll run through those quickly before we do switch across. Um, so there is the strange spot. Uh, which comes from the pinup of death, pin pinups of death. Um, this is a settlement event where they discover the survivors discover a man-sized patch of darkness on the outskirts of the settlement. The lanterns flicker and dim as they approach it. You choose a returning survivor to investigate the strange spot and roll one d10 on the table. On a one, the survivor's gone and dead. Um, on a two to six, the survivor emerges startlingly transformed. They gain the belt of gender swap and place it in their gear grid now. On a 7+, plus, same thing, they get the belt agenda swap, but they also get a permanent plus one evasion, accuracy, and strength. So apart from the 10% chance of death, which I'm not a huge like, fan of, as I'm sure you know, um, I think on the whole this is quite interesting because the belt agenda swap is not an amazing piece of gear, but they put two very useful green affinities on it, one which faces right and one which faces down. And both the right green and the down green are kind of hard to get your hands on. Um, additionally, this is the, the artwork on this is absolutely fantastic because it's Zachary being turned into a woman because, of course, it would be Zachary and, of course, it would be him turning into a woman because that's generally a theme in regards to him. And the other survivors, uh, is a little upset about it, but uh, Lucy's hooting and Alistair's finding it absolutely hilarious. So this card, with the exception of when it causes just that death out of nowhere on the 10 always seems to result in a chuckle. This did give us the anonymous survivor. Um, it's a really great card. So, I mean, how do you guys feel about it? I believe ours has a shiny back and therefore we always wind up glossing over it kind of purposefully. It does have a different print quality to the others. It's slightly pinker as well. I've sleeved mine. So it's a bit harder to spot. 
but it's also taller than the rest of the deck as well. I have not noticed that. Yeah. I normally fan the cards out and pick one at random instead of, like, take the top card, so that changes it a little bit. But, yeah, no, it's, it's a fun yeah. event. But how... Uh, say, just have you have you encountered this? Have you had it land on anyone? Yeah, we, in our private game, we had that land on someone. Um, and we still use them. I, I mean, it wasn't anything bad. I didn't get the, the super result where you got some plus stats, but it's interesting, and it could be clutch for, you know, a settlement that's low on some population or on one side of males or females if you need uh, another survivor that helps a lot yeah I mean as I say apart from the 10% chance of death I think that this card is really well designed and a lot of fun um, then we've got Story in the Snow which is the promo card that comes with um, Nico Nico, the um, the Christmas one Nico uh, a pale tall woman appears in the settlement frozen water crystals drift in the darkness above roll 1d10 adding plus 1 to the roll result for each time the players are cheated in the campaign um, on a 1 to 9 the speaker tells the story of a future dream when she is done no one can recall any of the details of the tale the next time all surviving departing survivors perish during the hunt or showdown phase they remember it was only a dream they reset to the start of the prepared departing survivor step of the same lantern year any saviors that departed are trapped in the speaker's dream and lost forever this can be gained multiple times um, and on a 10 plus the speaker tells the story of the glorious everyone understands the true meaning of death Sp- survivors spend the rest of the settlement phase uh, roaring into darkness the um, this element phase, no one can spend endeavors or craft, and despite survivors gain two bleeding togas, your new life principle is now survivor of the fittest. So, first of all, this has a very strange thing in that this card legitimizes cheating, which is a bit weird. It actually says cheating is a mechanic in this game, um, and that's kind of odd. Um, also, the one to nine result is actually really cool and good fun because you can go out and tackle something that's a little bit nastier and harder than normal and um, have an unusual bit of an experience. Um, the 10 plus now with 1.5 uh, rules is actually really good. So it's a bit weird, but have you guys ever drawn this? I don't have this promo card. This is the one promo card. I This and the uh, Xmas X I do not have. Oh, you're missing out. I've got both. And the, the artwork for this card is absolutely fantastic. It's the best picture of Nico in the game. Um, so you're missing out there. But uh, it's it's an odd card, but and I'm not sure entirely how I feel about it. Um, but having the do-overs is interesting. I just don't know. I, I don't know why... I mean, like, if it just stays as a promo card, it's kind of fun or whatever, but it, it's, I think with the one point, the, the 1.5 Kickstarter, this seems to, this card seems to be going out to a lot more people, which legitimizes a bit more. Uh, that's a little weird. But, you know, when you have a game with a lot of random death, you're going to have that little person be like, eh, let's re-roll this because I don't want this to happen. Matt and I have kind of done that or made excuses of the dice falling wrong or something like something stupid uh, and legitimize it but you know it's still cheating no 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 it landed on a pog and it was crooked so you have to roll it but only if it's showing a one yeah 
Now, there's something else I'm just checking, um, and I'm going to be a moment because it says uh, we are prepared to pardon survivors. There we are. Yeah, there isn't actually a prepared departing survivor step. There is a choose departing survivor step. Of course, yes, this is a poot special. So you actually get to wind back and I think basically pick an entirely different hunt if you want. So you can use this as a let's go out and fight something really scary. Oh, God, we've got no chance of doing that. So we'll rewind. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think you're missing much not having this card, but it is kind of... Apart from feeling weird, it is kind of a cool card in some ways. Yeah, I like the theme of the card and stuff. It, it, it's a it's a fun card. It's just yeah, not one I have. It's his inner collector that hurts the most from not having it. It was just the cost no. for the the Christmas promo stuff was just so expensive for the, like a single card. Just I couldn't bring myself to it. Yeah, yeah. So let's run through weapons then before we uh, before we wrap up. All right, let's do a quick run through. So I'm going to go through these quickly, and we'll give our brief little bits and some of these I have nothing to really say because I don't know them so I'm going to start with dagger uh, when attacking with a dagger if one attempt fails after performing any reactions you may discard another drawn hit location card to attempt to hit, win the hit location again and then the mastery is after a wounded hit location is discarded a dagger master who is adjacent to the attacker and the wounded monster may spend one survival to redraw the wounded hit location and attempt to wound with a dagger treat monster reactions on the redrawn hit location card normally all survivors Gain the specialization, yada, yada, yada. I know I don't use daggers. Fen, have you found a use for this? Uh, right, so on the whole, this one's kind of an averageish to okay um, mastery. It's not something you pursue very um, often, and it's not something I recommend for beginning players at all. Uh, as we noted before, we talked about the Kingsman. Daggers are relevant in that fight. However, there is some... You can make daggers work, and this is we'll get into this with expansions, and I don't mind talking a little bit about it now because we're reaching the end of the core game. But if you play with the Gorm and the Sunstalker in the same campaign, which is a good choice because there's a lot of synergies between those two expansions, um, and I think it's worth us talking about synergies at some point in the future. But uh, basically, the Gorm has very good daggers in Acid Tooth daggers um, that are strong enough to run you through most of the game, but they fall off near the late game. Cyclopean armor gives you ability, if you're in the blind spot, to gain sharp on your weapons. So you can make these acid tooth daggers, which are one of the few daggers I would always use paired, and make them very strong. Um, So daggers need expansions to be good. The core game daggers, let's face it, the scrap dagger is the best one of the bunch. And it's not that good. The catfang knife is rubbish. The lantern daggers are terrible. Um, so that's one of the things that holds daggers back. Uh, it's fun. This is fun to use. And it's worth exploring when you've played through the game a few times um, and you want to get off the beaten track of, track of using katars, grand weapons, bows, and spears. All right. Next up, I have uh, bows. So a specialization, when attacking with a bow, you may re-roll any misses once. Limit once per attack. And then mastery is, if you are a bow master, all bows in your gear grid gain deadly. In addition, ignore cumbersome on all bows. So you can actually move and attack with these. makes them a lot easier to use. Um, overall, I 
one of the better innovations in my book. Uh, Deadly 2 is awesome, and getting rid of Cumbersome makes bows a lot better, more reasonable to use. I wish the Cumbersome was on the specialization, though, personal. Yeah. Well, if the Cumbersome was on specialization, then you would have stuff like the Inkblood bow just, like, being ridiculous. Um, so I'm okay with it being on the Masters. I generally... Unless you're Matt, Bowmasters are very easy to keep alive because they're so far out of <laughs> hey, danger hey, hey, most hey, of the hey, time. Hey, hey Matt, Matt, you, your track record. How many times have you died just before getting bow mastery? No comment. Exactly, exactly. Um, this is great on arc bows in the core game, and this is part of the puzzle of making arc bows really good. I got a thing to complain about um, bow mastery. I think it is within the top. Uh, of the like i divide the masteries into offensive defensive and utility this is one of the top four or five offensive masteries uh it's great all right next up we have uh grand weapon uh when attacking with a grand weapon gain plus one accuracy when attacking with a grand weapon during your act if you critically wound the monster is knocked down and then uh the mastery is one of grand weapon mastery perfect hits with a grand weapon cancel all reactions for that attack Super solid weapon. Okay, so the specialization in general terms is better than the mastery. So yes. grand weapon is so good. Um, the mastery... Oh, sorry, excuse me a second. Needed a cough. Um, the mastery is actually ridiculously good in the hands of somebody with the perfect slayer. Um, or somebody who has bitter frenzy, or somebody who's using the Skleaver, which is from the um, one of the expansions. If you can get high speed going on grand weapon all in all this is one of the top two offensive um skill type uh, weapon masteries and way it combines on top of how good grand weapons are overall it's insanely good and like from lantern year five you can have this rocking if um especially if you're playing with the gorm or you know if you rush the to get the zambata you can get this on track maybe lantern year six with disabilities, plus one accuracy, man. And knockdown cancel reactions. This is one of the ways you can make high-speed builds work because your Grandmaster gets in there, smashes them onto the ground, and then your doo-doo rolls like five dice, jumps in, and has a lot less of a chance of getting shredded while he's attacking. Excellent. Excellent. And it's very hard to pass up Grand Weapon Mastery. No, it, it is pretty awesome. All right, up next we have the Sword Specialization. When attacking with a sword, after drawing hit locations, make a wounded tab and then select the hit location to resolve that result. Limit once per attack. And then the mastery is a sword mastery gains plus one accuracy, plus one strength, and plus one speed when attacking with a sword. Specialization's fantastic. Really good. The mastery does cause a lot of problems. Um, not so much in the starting, um, in the core campaign, where like having high speed you don't get punished as much, but um, if you do start hunting the high-level monsters, it can be a real pain in the ass. Also, at least within the core game, the best sword is the scrap sword or something like the adventure sword, um, and you very rarely see the adventure sword. In fact, um, I would be surprised if you guys told me you've ever had an adventure sword. Nope, never got it. Yeah, you can get it from one hunt event or fighting one legendary um, but yeah, it's uh, it changes your game when you do get it. It's good fun. Uh, it's this is like um, a lower tier mastery. Swords are very good without mastery. Um, 
in fact, normally it's better to get mastery and then have your sword specialists, have people without mastery come out and use the swords instead. Um, worth noting as well, though, that uh, Vagabond Armor, as I mentioned before, basically gives you sword mastery and sword specialization for free. So you very rarely prioritize doing this if you happen to own those two promos. And I believe the Dragon Slayer is also a sword. So if you it is, yep. you duel up on that, and uh, that can make it interesting. Yeah, if you can get that, and you, you can get Grand Weapon going, and you can get Bitter Frenzy, you can build, um, well, you, you can build a certain character from a certain manga. Yep. So, all right, that's for swords. Uh, next up, we have shields. Uh, while shield is in your gear grid, you are no longer knocked down after collision with a monster. And when a shield is in your gear grid, add one armor to all hit locations. Mastery, when a shield master is adjacent to a survivor that is targeted by a monster, they may swap spaces on the board with that survivor and become the target instead. This master must have a shield performed to do, to do this. Yeah, so the specialization is what everybody wants. This is one of those ones that you try and get mastered every single campaign because shields, as we talked about when we discussed the leather worker before, are one of the, one of the best pieces of defense and the most efficient defense in the entire game. Um, so this is incredible to have on them. Actually, the mastery ability is also really good. Like you can like take the hits from reactions to protect your um, high speed attackers as they're going in. So. It's this is like premium. This is it's just hard work to get it done, especially since most of the shields don't hit very hard, especially early game. Yeah, yeah. Um, generally, if you can rush within the core game, if you can rush iron, then you can get a beacon shield and use that, and that'll get your mastery pretty quickly because a beacon shield's a very solid weapon. Um, but outside of that, it's sort of like trying to beat things up with a leather shield or even worse than that a feather shield or or even worse than that the, the crap shield um is just it's it's horrible for experience so if you get iron rushing down um this mastery comes available otherwise you generally need expansions to be able to do this well yeah so up next we have the uh guitar uh specialization when attacking with a guitar cancel reactions on the first selected hit location and then the mastery is, uh, if you're a guitar master, gain a plus one evasion token on a perfect hit with a guitar. When you're knocked down, remove all plus one evasion tokens. You're a guitar master. Matt, how do you feel about this? I mean, I do love the guitars. I just, I've been shying away from them a little bit more recently just because of the speed issue. But I don't know, I just, I guess if you only do one of them, it's not that big of a deal. But I have, you know, if you have the option to dual wield them, I feel obligated to almost. Uh, no, no, no. What, what would you say, Matt, if I told you if you take one digging claw in the hands of a guitar master, you can solo the level one and level two Lion God? I believe it. The digging claws are phenomenal. It's just that I haven't played around with them nearly as much as I should. It's, it's not just the digging claws themselves. It's the fact that uh, it's the specialization ability. Um, Cancelling a reaction is ridiculously powerful and incredibly safe um so many monsters actually especially like some of the harder monsters that are pain in the ass because of the reactions the sunstalker the dung beetle knight the um, lion god even the phoenix um it's their reactions that cause you problems especially at the higher levels Qatar mastery 
it's a toss-up between it and Grand Weapon Mastery, which one is the best in the game. In the core game, Grand Weapon Mastery is better, but that's just because there's only two Katars in the base game, and they're both early to mid-game. There's no like late-game transition for you, so you need a lot of strength to take Katars into the late-game. If you can get a Timeless Eye Master, um, then and and you know you you can build your own evasion. You just such a safe way to fight. Um, I love it to pieces, and it, it took me a bit of a while to realize just how effective Guitar Mastery was because I was sidetracked in the way I think you have been a little bit mad in that you kind of think, well, I, they're paired. I should be using them in pairs, and it turns out you should not be using Katars in pairs except for. Beast Core Katars or the Spidiculous Katars. Um, I think there's one other that work well in pairs, but most Katars are better used singularly. Um, and they become a very methodical chopping weapon that's incredibly safe to use. So, yay Katars, yay Katar Mastery. Yay Katars. Alright, next up we have Axe. Is a special edition when you when attacking with an axe. If your wound attempt fails, you may ignore it and attempt to wound though, select a hit location again. Then the mastery, when an axe master wounds a location with an axe at a location with a persistent injury, that wound becomes a critical hit. I think axes are awesome, and I'm really sad I haven't had a chance to play with this one yet. This is incredibly good, and um, it is definitely up there, possibly. It's, it's, that's the thing, it's like hovering around with bow and guitar and grand weapon in like the top four offensive ones. Um, additionally, the axe has the benefit that there's a fair few weapons that axe spear hybrids. So, you know, that's, we'll look at spear in a short while. Um, but yeah, this is great. And with the right kind of, um, stuff like the cat's eye circlet, you basically, you've got an incredibly safe way of attacking. Uh, the only real issue with axes in the core game is you've got a very good, you've got a kind of bad early game axe in the bone axe. It's expensive for what it does, but you know, if you want to go axes, it'll, It'll get you on the path. You've got a very good mid-game axe in the counterweight axe, but then you have to use the lantern glaive for the late game, and it's okay, the lantern glaive, um, but it's not as good as as it could be. Axes become more prevalent when you play with expansions. Um, There's a really good axe progression chain just with adding the Gorm and the Sunstalker in, um, which is kind of a theme with a lot of weapons. Those two expansions just smooth out a lot of problems in the core game. Um, I love Axe Mastery. Um, I rate it very highly. I just think that Grand Weapon Mastery and Katar Mastery are a... The way that they can cancel reactions pushes them a little bit above Axe Mastery. Um, but against certain monsters, an Axe Master will shine more than they do. It's like a 5 out of 5, this, you know. Along with Shield, along with Bow, along with Grand Weapon, and like Katar, they're all, like, top-notch. And this with a uh, Wisdom Potion is amazing. If you know there's a, a permanent injury on top and you have the mastery. Yeah. yeah. Alright, up next we're going to do whips. Matt likes whips, right? I think Matt just disconnected. He left us. Yes, yes. Um, well, I can run quickly through whips, that's fine. Uh, whip mastery is not very good. Um, it's You can do stuff with it. Um, the problem is, is that the core game whip progression, rawhide whip is decent. Then the leather whip is bad, and the ring whip is even worse because um, it's like three dice and it has early iron again, so it's incredibly problematic. Um, 
whips are worth exploring if you play with this Spidiculous expansion because it has a really good whip in it. Um, but they still fall off in the late game. So the second half of that puzzle is you need to get Cyclopean armor. So you have to go Spidiculous plus Sunstalker, uh, which there's good synergies between those as well. Um, and then effectively you can have some fun with whips through the whole game. So whip I would put in the advanced section. There is some potent stuff involved in it, um, but it's like a three out of five. Yeah, and just to read this off is when you wound with a whip, instead of moving the top card of the AI deck into the wound stack, you may move the top card of the AI deck, AI, AI discard path pile. Ugh, I screwed that up orally. Um, and then the mastery is whip master's gate plus five strength when attacking with a whip. I wish there was some more monster ma- manipulation with that. I like the AI yeah. deck thing. Maybe even with hit locations or something else, like the plus five strength is whatever. Yeah, you need the plus five strength to make the whips carry through into the late game. That's the frustrating part. That they become a viable weapon with that much strength. Whips are one of the few weapons that desperately need the strength. So, yeah. All in all, maybe the second generation expansions will give us some better whips, and whip uh, mastery will start to shine a bit. I'd love to see whips like be able to like slightly move a monster around on the board. Well, that's kind of what the rawhide whip does because it does have that like priority to- token thing. So it sort of you can draw the monster to you, a bit like a lion tamer. Yeah, but if, like you can move like the monster, like one wound and move the monster one space in any direction. Yeah, all right, I, I get what you mean. Yeah, yeah, the, the whips do like need a little bit more flavor. There's supposed to be some coming in 1.5. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, but I'm not sure that it's going to be enough. I, I'm, I'm very concerned that the changes to whips might just mean that people just stick a whip in one of their grids and don't really use it. All right, so next up I have club specialization. And this is the old one. If you have the new text in front of you, Fen. Um, I, I don't have the new text. I'll have to go roughly from memory. Okay. Um, but so, the old text basically gives them paired, if I remember correctly. Yep, the old text uh, paired. Uh, cannot be used with two-handed clubs, so it's completely useless for two-handed clubs. And then if you're club master, all clubs in your gear grid gain savage, which is eh. And then on perfect yeah. day, clubs gain plus three strength until the end of the attack. Which is also eh. Yeah, you can see why they changed this mastery. It's very kind of meh. The um, the new version basically is, uh, if you get perfect hit, I think you double your wound attempt. And then there's something like if you wound a monster on a mastery with more than double, then you get to deal additional wounds or double the wounds or something like that. It's still not that great. Um, clubs are generally lacking. There's not enough good clubs in the game yet. Um, and this is a mastery that's not exciting, really. Um, although it's interesting that they've moved away from doing paired clubs, they, it seems clearly they recognized people are not that interested in paired weaponry. But um, what, what, so two, what clubs can be paired? Because there's not... Riot Mace and the Skull Hammer Club and the Whistling Mace. They're all one-handed clubs. I think Actually, Whistling Mace might not be, but definitely the Skull and the Riot Mace can. The Riot Mace is about the best one you could pair because it's a very, very good club. But that's expansion, base game. I'm, I'm just thinking. Yeah, which is kind of like a bad founding stone. All right. Uh, and then I have spear next. When attacking with a spear, if you draw a trap card, roll a d10. On a 7+, plus, cancel the trap, discard it, and then reshuffle the hit location. Discard into the hit location deck and draw a new card. 
Mastery. Whenever Spearmaster hits a monster with a spear, they may spend one survival to gain the priority token. If they made the hit from directly behind another survivor, that survivor gains a priority token instead. Yeah, so Spear Mastery is pretty much the reason why you have a Spear um, user in every single party, because Spear Specialization is an almost entirely unique ability. There's something similar on Blue Charms, but because it's a different stacks with Blue Charms, Spears are amazing, Spears are life. Um, Spear Mastery is actually quite effective because you can effectively make sure that it's the tank who gets attacked every single turn uh, and the tank will have like block two and tons of evasion so spear mastery is like five out of five it might even be like six out of five i see no reason to not have a spear master all the time and the core game spears are enough in every stage of the game you've got the lion um the King Spear from the Lion, you've got the Finger of God from the Phoenix, and you've got the Lantern Glaive um, from the, uh, um, what do you call it, from the Blacksmith. So Spears are amazing. Um, once I discovered about Spears, my whole game changed. Yeah, Spears, uh, this is one I want to pick up in our current campaign, um, and we just got a Spear made, so I can start actually trying to go for it. Um, but we're all lacking on weapon specialization. We don't have anyone with any specialization because... Just keep getting new survivors. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll get there. You'll build the gear to protect your survivors, and then your survivors will level up. I wouldn't worry about it. All right, and then last off, we have Fist and Tooth, which I don't have my card in front of me. I don't know where it went. Well, um, we remember what it does, though. The specialization is you're allowed to stand up either at the start of the survivor's turn or at the start of the monster's turn. So effectively, knockdowns become hugely mitigated. That's the reason that everybody says get Fist and Tooth, because when you have the mastery, that means everyone in the settlement can just kind of stand up. Um, please stand up. And then the mastery gives you bonuses to, I think it's plus two accuracy, plus one strength permanently. So it becomes one of those things. Two. It might be plus two, plus two. Yeah, it's really good. Um, the, the only hard thing about Fist and Tooth is it's awkward and difficult to put together. But... There are a few things that improve that, um, not just expansion-based, um, because, of course, there's the promo, white speaker promo, which gives you a fist and tooth dagger that's fantastic. So fist and tooth is difficult if you play pure core game with nothing else going on. Um, but if you're playing with expansions, there are lots of methods, and we'll talk about them in future episodes, um, that basically allow you to get fist and tooth mastery easier. Otherwise, you kind of get so far and then nightmare train your way the last bit. But yeah, Fist and Tooth, like you start working on it from your lantern year two, and I hope you can get it as soon as you can. Premium, top notch, but it's kind of utility rather than sheer power. Yeah. So yeah. And, and the plus two strength and accuracy is for all weapons, not just Fist and Tooth. So that just makes yeah. it like, all right, I did this and now I'm going to be amazing at everything else now because, you know, I'm going to hit with everything. Yeah. But. Yeah, it's it's kind of cool if you can have a survivor who's ageless who completes their mastery um, of whatever they're doing first pretty early on. If you're like, what else am I going to do? It's like, well, I'll start work on Fist and Tooth, you know. Yeah, that's what it's, I it's did with one of my survivors. They did uh, Shield, who's my tank. I was like, all right, I'll do Fist and Tooth because he's going to just be blocking most of the time. But he can throw a couple punches here and now and just get a couple hits. Um, and he already had stupid stats just because he was ageless and had just had a bunch of stuff happen to him. And then... uh so we did all that, and then he got Fist and Tooth Mastery, and he's like, all right, now I can't get knocked out. I'm the ultimate tank, 
well, once he got special edition, it was like that. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go for, I think he was going for Spear next with the uh, Halbert Gra- uh, Glaive. Glaive? Yeah, Lantern Glaive, yeah. Lantern Glaive, and then he died to something stupid. Well, that's usually what happens to someone like that. I mean, <laughs> I had a survivor who had seven weapon masteries, and she died to something stupid. So, you know, these things happen. But, uh, yeah, he was uh, he was unstoppable. He would have been completely unstoppable if uh, he kept going. So he was, like, yeah. plus five or six evasion naturally or something stupid like that. Um, yeah, eventually those reactions kill you. That's, like, the most lethal part once you get really good, those damn reactions. Anything else we want to go over, Fan? Uh, no, I'm pretty good for now. I mean, obviously we just uh, we can uh, let people know what we're going to be doing, uh, was it two weeks from now? And, um, and then, you know, wrap up with uh, what's happening tomorrow. Yeah, so um, two weeks from now, I guess we're going to finish this. We put a lot more on the plate than we thought we would. Uh, we still want to talk about Hunt events a little bit, and I know you hate them, Fen, but but they are part of the game. Uh, yeah. Talk about the innovation tree a little bit. Yeah, I've got some cool stuff to discuss with regards to the innovation tree. So I've got a lot of material. I probably won't put all of it out there, but it'll make up for how snarky I get during the hunt phase section. And we're not going to go over every all 100 events. It's that's I way, know, yeah. way too many. We're, yeah. we're going to go over the uh, more notable events. Um, either the ones are, oh, this is really, really shitty, or this is really, really cool. Um, yeah. And point those all out. Um, and then I'm going to complain about the design of it as a whole. Uh, that's what you normally do. You're grumpy old. I, I was seeing if your, your your shade was going to turn a little bit, like some of the other ones, where you're like, I really, really hate this. And you're like, you know what? I don't hate this as much as I thought I hate it. No, so the settlement events and hunt and hunt phase are the two things that I genuinely think need an expansion to replace what's going on. So we will talk more about that next time. All right, um, and as everyone's noticed, uh, Matt did have to drop off. He had to run out. So he's going to miss the closing, and I'm going to get to do it this time. So thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, join us again in two weeks, where we will be doing uh, more, just talking about the base game itself, hunt events, innovations, fighting arts disorders, everything we haven't really picked up, just the little minor things. So when we go into expansions, we're like, oh, it adds this new hunt event, or this new uh, settlement event or innovation. You have a, some context of what it is and how it rates with everything else. Um, next will be uh, join us tomorrow at starting at 11 a.m. PST, which is two Eastern. Uh, the start of the Relics of Noah Vita is going to be streaming on Twitch. It's going to be on the front page. It's the whole TGN group. Uh, we're all doing a continuous story between all the streams. Uh, we are up at 8 p.m. Eastern, but before us we have Save and Throw Show, uh, Late Night Tabletop, ourselves, and then Exploding Dice is going to be finished it off. It's going to be a lot of fun. Me and Matt are uh, co-DMing together. Uh, he's going to be the main DM, but I'm going to kind of be behind the scenes uh, doing a couple bunch of things. Uh, and it's going to be kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure for all the chat to play with, so it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, besides that, you can join us on Tuesday for Twitch Plays Kingdom Death. Monday, we do... I skipped Monday. We have a spotlight on Monday. We have Gambler. Yeah. Right, we have Gambler on Monday. Uh, Wednesday, we have another spotlight, Tales of... Clans of Caledonia. I, I pronounced that wrong, but it's on Kickstarter now. It's doing amazing. And then Thursday we have our Twitch plays slash loses at the set. Whatever this week feels like happening. So hopefully you guys join us for all that and uh, thanks for coming. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time for hunts and innovations. Yeah, and uh, 
a little shout out to Fen. He's streaming now. I don't know if we've mentioned that on the podcast yet. So uh, he's up on stream, and uh, he also has his Patreon and uh, Instagram and his commission work for all his cool minis. So make sure you check all that out too. Yeah, yes I am. Thank you very much for the shout out. Okay, well, I'll uh, see you guys in the next podcast. All right, thanks everyone for joining us, and have a good night.